welcome to Filmstrip's Star Wars Retrospective Series, where we will review the films of the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. This is madness. Our guides for this journey will be Kurt, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, and Jay. I'm taking an awful risk, this had better work. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes. The Force will be with you. Always. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Kurt. And this is our Star Wars retrospective series and our review of Star Wars Episode 4 A New Hope, starring Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, Peter Cushing, Alec Guinness, David Prowse, and the voice of James Earl Jones. Directed by George Lucas. Of course, everyone knows the blockbuster, the original, you know, one of the original blockbusters, 1977, on a budget of just over $11 million, has grossed somewhere upwards of $775 million and counting worldwide in all of its many releases. It's been in theaters multiple times in my lifetime, and I think even in yours, uh, Kurt. So, Star Wars, man. You know, uh, we were looking for something different to do this summer that wasn't tied to a release that was coming out this summer. And I have wanted to do Star Wars for a long time, and none of the other film strip crew were down for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, everybody didn't want to touch it for a different, you know, different reasons. And, and I can understand it. We'll get into some of that in a bit, but I hit you up about it and you said yeah let's do it and i thought this is going to be fabulous because and and not even by planning but we got the oldest you know, person in uh continuous play land and the youngest person in continuous play to <laughs> review a a film that is seminal for so many folks so oh, yeah. yeah so i you know i can talk about star wars forever but tell me you know again uh, younger generation but you've actually seen these films the same way i saw them all at least the same order in and we'll get into that so your background with star wars well uh i first got into star wars about uh, before the age of 10 third grade somewhere around that and yeah 97 that was the year uh big year i guess that must have been that was the re-release yeah that was the re-release must have been some kind of announcement regarding the prequels so it had to be connected with the prequels that they released the special edition yeah they 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 were starting production on the new one and that's that's on the uh, phantom menace yeah oh yeah and i watched those uh in the theater uh star wars is one of the only franchises where i've seen all of the entire series in the theater and yeah watched uh episodes four five and six in the theater uh and very glad i did and the special editions might touch on some of the revisions and stuff that they did but uh they certainly didn't bother me at the time. Like I can't, I cannot recall ever watching the theatrical cuts of the original Star Wars trilogy. So, like if I did, uh, it might be jarring to me. But uh, uh, looking at the difference, like I've seen comparison videos of you know what the scenes look like before and after the revisions, and there's a few bits that it's like, yeah, that that change was unnecessary. But more or less, these special editions, I have no problem uh, watching them. That's what I watched. Uh, uh, last night and prep for the show and uh it's still good stuff yeah and you mentioned something there you saw them in the order that they were made which is rare for the younger generation most people know the prequels and then they went back and they've seen these now but 
and the, one of the reasons we decided to do this retrospective in this order, the order they were released, is because, well, really, this is our point of view from the, the films. I mean, when I learned about Star Wars, this was the one, the first one I saw. And, uh, I, you know, of course, I'm, I wasn't actually, you know, going to movies in 1977. For people to think I'm that old, I was actually born just a year before this. But my brother, who's five years older than me, big Star Wars geek as a kid. Yeah. And totally into it. So I saw that, and right before Empire Strikes Back came out, I went seeing this one. I think it either came back in theaters or it was on television or something. I know I saw it because I knew what was going on enough to be able to pay attention to Empire Strikes Back. And I'll tell more of my Empire story next time because it <laughs> ties into that one. But I, you know, I've grown up with these films, and I remember the theatrical release as well. So when they were re-released, I was in college, Kurt. And yeah. I remember my girlfriend and I at the time going to the theaters to see these – and watching the generation younger than us, you know, that were kids in the theater, you know, folks your age, watch, and it was all new to them, <laughs> you know, and we yeah. were, we knew it was coming, and we we're sitting there going, oh, that's new, oh, that's different, oh, that's clean, where did that go, you know, <laughs> and so we're sitting there picking that up, and everybody else is just soaking it in, so I, it's hard to ignore Star Wars as a phenomenon, and I think I should just say it from right at the top here, this series is six films. We're doing yeah. this one, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. All the EU, wonderful. Glad you all are into it. All the you know, cartoons, all that other stuff, video games, awesome. <laughs> Glad there's an extended universe. But we are a film review show, and we <laughs> are reviewing these six films just for what they are. So, yeah. and, and that needs to be set up front because... That is one of the big concerns I know a couple of our compatriots had about this. Is like, man, if you open up the Star Wars can, you know, there's just there's so much passion about it, and people have got so much invested in it that it's hard to ignore all of that stuff. And I don't really necessarily want to ignore it, but I, I can watch these films for just what they are because as big a Star Wars fan as I am, I, I'm really a fan of the films. That's what I know. When I think Star Wars, I think these six films. Yeah, uh, some there's a, I mean. There is a massive a, a expanded universe of, of Star Wars, of, and that is one of the things about this universe that Lucas created. That is that uh, I was listening to this. I might be referencing these guys a few times over the course of this series. MMM commentaries. They're this Australian group. They do uh, fan commentaries for movies, and they did a Star Wars series, and that is phenomenal. And they made a lot of observations. One of them was the idea that in Star Wars, you know, the the, the logo comes up, Star Wars, and you see all these stars. And we pan down. It's always a pan down on one particular planet. And the idea, like one guy took away from that, the idea that this massive universe, we're just looking at one of these planets. Yeah. There's billions of possible stories involving, you know, kingdoms rising and falling. Like maybe this empire really isn't that important in the grand scheme. But that's how big this universe is. And I know it from uh, a few comics here and there, uh, but mainly uh, video games. That's yeah. that was my big foray into the extended universe. Shadow of the Empire for the N64. That was the first uh, N64 game I remember playing, and that that for some reason that really kicked my my Star Wars fandom up a lot. Playing that game, and that was a good game at the time. Playing it now on the N64 is like, oh yeah, it's <laughs> not great. One thumbstick. How the hell did that work? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, you know, my video game knowledge of Star Wars is is somewhat limited. I played a few of them here and there. I do remember Shadow of the Empire, and it's a great, great game. But 
I, you know, for me, the films are are the entry point, and and yeah. and the toys, and having grown up with them, I still have Star Wars stuff, <laughs> and it's it's neat to see it. I don't really you know do anything with it anymore, but it's I just have it, and I've held on to it because I thought, ah, hey, you know, it's part of the childhood, man. It was just it was what we did, and uh, oh no, it's neat to go back, and I have owned these films on VHS and on DVD and and all of the you know the different formats and things but it had been a while since I had sat down and watched them again I think I think maybe 4 or 5 years ago I ended up with a long weekend by myself my wife was gone or something and I don't know whether it was bad I don't know I just got into this I'm going to I'm just going to marathon them and I went from Phantom Menace through Return of the Jedi hmm. and I promised I would never watch them in that order again even though I know that's the order Lucas intends it's not really the order I know them in and so it's hard for me to, to watch them like that. So if I go to watch one nowadays, I, I'm always selective about where I go. But I, I won't mind saying from the top, this is a go-to for me because it was one of the first VHS films my family owned. We got a copy of that, and we bought it. It was one of those Columbia House deals, if you're familiar with those. Way back in the day, we did that. And I remember having the original Star Wars theatrical. I still have it, actually. I still have that print. <laughs> and uh, and I, I don't own a working VCR now, but I own the VHS for it, So, <laughs> which is funny. But I remember watching it you know, over and over again. I mean, this is just something I've gone back to quite a bit. And uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to minimize the impact this film and – all these films, but particularly this one, has had on culture and and everything. I mean, the, it changed the way films were made and marketed and produced and everything, you know, forever. Oh yeah, this and Jaws two years before really set up. They they, they invented the blockbuster. Spielberg and Lucas mm-hmm. invented the blockbuster with those two films. And yeah, it is. That was I was noticing that trying to watch it last night. I was trying as hard as possible mm-hmm. to erase. Everything Star Wars has touched, the sequels and all the movies that they've ins- that they've uh, inspired, and all of every comic book, and uh, that is one thing about this movie is when you try as hard as I as I when I try as hard as I can to separate everything else, and you look at it from a perspective of what people were watching in 1977, really, there was nothing else like this in movie theaters at no. all. This there were sci-fi movies that maybe tried to do stuff like this, but nothing as big with this kind of budget behind it. And uh, that was one thing. John, I heard John Landis said, I mean, Star Wars uh, is the movie that changed, you know, sci-fi used to be a B-movie genre and was oh, given yeah. B-movie budgets. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, Star Wars comes along and this showed, you know, this is what happens when you give genre stuff a massive budget. Some people, you know, have some that has led to some bad movies. There's no question. <laughs> but, you know, without Star Wars, we wouldn't have, you know, Dozens and dozens of classic films. We wouldn't have Lord. Of, we wouldn't have Lord of the Rings. We no. wouldn't have. Uh, wouldn't have the Star Trek movie franchise. Wouldn't have, you know, most of the great genre movies of the last thirty years. We would not have if it were not for Star Wars. No, and I mean, we wouldn't even. Uh, it, we wouldn't even have blockbusters the way we have them now. It used to be there was one blockbuster a year. And yeah. now it's every week there's two of them going head to head, it seems like. You know, yeah. there's these, you know, huge hundred, two hundred million dollar budget films going right after each other. And this this changed the game, no doubt. And uh, really you know, not only beyond that, just the pioneering of the effects and everything mm-hmm. else that was going on. I mean, it's, it's, again, you can't minimize the impact that this had on filmmaking in general and just what it what it meant to uh, the community. But uh, you hit on something else there too. Sci-fi films were either incredibly uh, 
I, I don't want to use this term pejoratively, but they were eggheaded kind of films. They were films about thought and making you really delve beyond it. I, I don't want to get too lost in that, but like, you know, 2001, it's a, yeah. it's a brilliant sci-fi film, but it is very sci-fi. And uh, even a film like the original Planet of the Apes, as much you know, action is in that, those are thinker films. This film married sci-fi with swashbuckling action that you just didn't get. And if you look at action films of the 70s, particularly the late 70s, they were always gritty. I mean, you're talking about stuff like Jaws or like The French Connection. Mm-hmm. And things like that where, I mean, you know, it's it's hard and Dirty Harry and people like that. You know, it's just it was a different time and one that I, you know, I don't remember much of. And thankfully we aren't in anymore, but it, it was a different mindset. And this film was all about, you know, colors and hope. And it was it was a blast, you know, and uh, even think about a film like Alien that we're both fans of and have seen yeah. multiple times. That's a totally different look at the future <laughs> than, yeah. than this. I mean, that's a very kind of dirty and, you know, corporately strangled future versus what this film is. Oh yeah. And you're talking about the revolution of on filmmaking and mm. just literally the technique. I always thought, I don't know, this might've literally been a conversation that Lucas thought when he watched 2001 and thought, you know, these effects are great, but I wonder what would happen if you made the ships go uh, 10 times as fast mm-hmm. uh, and and so on. Like, it's basically the 2001 effects put into an action yep. context. And that watching it like that, the effects, like, even the effects that they, even the, the ones they didn't touch for the special edition, just the model shots are fantastic. The mm-hmm. Death Star trench and stuff like that. Literally, that shot of, you know, uh, going into the trench is still an, a fantastic shot. Oh yeah, I mean you can't beat the the mix of the model works. It's one of the reasons I like a lot of the Christopher Nolan films and yeah. the way that he and Wally Pfister have have shot films together is that it's this mix of practical and CGI. Even a film like Inception, which is heavy CGI, there's a oh, yeah. lot of practical effect in there too. And anytime you can get those things mixed together, married together, well, it's one of the things I liked about this the the uh, Captain America film that came out earlier this summer is it's a good mix of practical and CGI effect. And and I think this was before there were computer effects, not you know, not the way that we know them today. This is before Jurassic Park and all that kind of stuff. So the fact that they've gone in and laid over some of that stuff to clean it up, I never, I've never had a problem with with special edition touch-ups. Now, some of the things I'm like, yeah, that's not necessary. Hmm. But if you're going to make it look a little bit better, but retain the the feel of it, that's fine. And I, I think I'm with you. It's it, some of these models and matte paintings and stuff still look amazing today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't even notice it, you know. Oh, no. And yeah, like no matter what, there's been, you know, the Lord of the Rings has done insane stuff with special effects. Mm-hmm. I mean, gravity, so on, special effects. But you will never get a better looking effect than a really great physical model. Like 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 stop motion animation compared to uh, computer animation. It just it just the the way light works on uh, actual physical stuff. It just looks better. Yeah, and always like always makes me you know obviously we will get into this with the prequels is that so little was real. There are several scenes where where the only physical thing is an actor and the table they are sitting at. Everything else is green screen. Now, if they if Lucas really wanted to do something amazing, he would take that hundreds of millions of dollars and put it to work making the greatest physical models ever seen in a movie. Mm. And they just did not do that. Lord of the Rings did that. They did some great stuff with literally model shots, you know, models, you know, that are like you know, 10 feet high, but they're technically models and they just they look amazing. Mm. And, yeah, the models in Star Wars, all three of the original trilogy are still look uh, fantastic. 
Oh yeah, they they do, and and we'll get into the prequels later on. But I guess it's time for us to get into this film proper, and I think we've explained why we're going in this order and versus you know some of the other ones that we could choose. But uh, we, we're doing something a little special here for this one. Normally, it's either me, you, you know, one of the hosts reads the plot summary and all, and we decided we should have a different voice do the plot summaries for us. So our buddy John Jansen from over at the Hollywood Gauntlet has lent us his pipes and he will deliver the plot summaries for us in these six films. So John, tell us what Star Wars is about. Star Wars, episode four, A New Hope. It's been many years after the formation of the Empire and their control over the galaxy is slipping. Luke Skywalker, a seemingly simple farm boy, is thrust into the struggle of the Rebel Alliance when he meets Obi-Wan Kenobi, who has lived for years in seclusion on the desert planet of Tatooine. Obi-Wan begins Luke's Jedi training as Luke joins him along with a rogue space pilot, Han Solo, on a daring mission to rescue the beautiful Rebel leader, Princess Leia, who is imprisoned in the Empire's most dreaded weapon, the Death Star. Obi-Wan ultimately sacrifices himself in a lightsaber duel with the evil Darth Vader, a former apprentice of Kenobi's who murdered Luke's father. And Luke proves that the Force is indeed strong with him by leading a daring attack and destroying the Death Star. Our heroes stand proud as credits roll. So let's get into it here, Kurt. I mean, we, you know, those plot summaries are condensed for a reason, so we, you know, we're trying to keep it all together here. But I think the, the first thing is just the open. Of the film, mm-hmm. just boom, Star Wars on the screen, and that the the trumpet blast and the John Williams score, that is one of the things that when I think of Star Wars, I just think of that moment that ba ba you know, it's just right there in front of you. Oh yeah, when like that music, when he's like the star, big Star Wars logo fills the frame. In in all six films, each even if I'm watching Phantom Menace, like oh this is gonna suck, that moment still makes me go oh yeah, isn't Star Wars cool? Uh, and yeah, that that. That the the crawl, the um, 1930s serial style, you know, crawl of giving us a summary of the quote unquote story that came before. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when you know watching that first movie, even knowing you know that there was no movie before, you know, Star mm-hmm. Wars Episode Four. Even that, it was just it did give you a, a a sense of you're in the middle of a story. You're not watching the beginning of a story. Yeah, uh, and that was cool. And yeah, the music. I mean, the music. I in my I think the music is the most iconic thing in this entire franchise. As much as the characters and the quotes, you you hear that music. Uh, it's it's one of the, just the most recognizable soundtracks in movie history. I mean, as music from any scene, some scene where it's just you know where you don't even you know there's no recognizable theme, but you just hear that music and you think Star Wars. It's it's hard to say it because of his career is so long and his his films are so such a wide variety but it's probably the best john williams and i'm a jaws fanatic it's my favorite film of all time and that score makes that film but this one blows it away this is a fabulous score all the way around you can't you can't get better than this score because it tells you everything you want to know and i mean i, I mean williams has always been this guy we brian and i talked about this on the, the superman retrospective that his music can tell you part of the story you know, you listen to that Superman score, and it sounds like trumpets saying the word Superman. Yeah. You know, and he wrote it that way specifically. But this Star Wars thing, instead of being, you know, music of the times, which was seventies, which can you imagine Star Wars with a disco? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. That, not, I know there is Star Wars disco music because good grief, there's Star Wars everything. But try yeah. to listen to that sometime, and the and the crawl come up, and you think you're watching a parody. It's like Family oh, yeah. Guy, you know, or something like that. So. I've, I find this score to be one of the, the 
bigger entry points for me and really a lot of a lot of people on this one. I think it it's hard to ignore how good this score really is and it sets a tone immediately, and then you get that crawl. It's just that dump of information real quick. It's a, there's a galactic civil war, and you got you know you got the empire chasing these rebels, and the the opening scene is set for you. There's a princess hurrying back with some plans about a space station that she's trying to get to her people. And the next thing we see is that little rebel ship, which looks kind of cool. It actually looks like something out of alien or, or 2001. And then, then it gets chased by like the pizza shape from hell. <laughs> you know what I mean, that is just laying down fire on top of it. And Kurt, I'm a big fan of films like submarine films, Navy films, things like that. My dad was in the Navy. I grew up with all that kind of stuff. So anything that sort of evokes naval battle, and sometimes I think the best space films evoke that, I'm always down for. And I always get that sense here of like, this is like this little British trawler trying to get away from the Bismarck from Germany in World War II. Just barreling down on it. Oh yeah, and uh, definitely seeing in the movie in the theater, even if I I had seen the movie however many times before, Mm -hmm. That shot of the you know little blockade runner shooting back at some and just the the star destroyer that just we just it just keeps filling the screen. It's like how long is this thing? And the music that ba 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 as just as we see just how friggin' big this thing is. Yes. That's something to see in the theater. And that's like that's the very first thing. And that 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 image of seeing how big this ship is that uh, really sets the tone for the entire movie. You're going to see stuff that you've never seen before. And I would have killed to have been in the theater in 77 to see that with an audience. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember seeing it, you know, in the uh, – it came out – it was in a in a theater setting in the 80s. I had a friend that went, you know, finagling that for us once. And then I remember seeing it on the re-release and just thinking how awesome it still looked. And it, and you know what? I'd never noticed it until this time. And I don't know how many times I've seen this film, and it never struck me. But the gumption of that blockade runner, they're firing back. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's it's almost as uh, well, you know, not to make it too more than what it is, but I'm always uh, blown away by the moment in Saving Private Ryan where, spoiler alert, Tom Hanks' <laughs> character is about to die and he's got his 45 out and he's just ripping rounds into that tank that's coming at him. Because yeah. it's just like, I'm not going down without, you know, swinging my very last club at you. And I kind of got that <laughs> same feeling here. It's like these people are like, yeah, we're dead, whatever. And they're just, they're just firing back in, in complete vain. But uh, which also undermines what happens on the ship in a minute when they talk about we're just a counselor ship. Why are you firing yeah. up on me? But no, <laughs> I, you know, I, I do like that. And I love how the Star Destroyer just engulfs it. And then basically this claw comes down, grabs it. And then you see all these people lining up in the hallway for something to enter the ship. And you don't know what's coming down the hallway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like uh, just again, like. Uh... The you know there's a shot of the, the stuff in space. Then we're inside the ship, and we're in uh, the. Pr- I love how pristine white the inside of that that ship is. And that's some of, uh, one of my favorite things about Star Wars is the contrast between worlds. Like how pristine, not a speck of dirt anywhere, and the contrast of that, and you know, say Tatooine, how <laughs> they really make you feel like this is a, a, a real, as realistic a world as you can. Like like these two world that this these two things exist in the same universe because. You look at like Tatooine and stuff that goes on the cantina, but then you look at stuff like the stormtroopers and the rebel alliance fights. Just like it is weird that they're in, that it, this is all done by the same designers, same uh, in the same movie. 
Well, and the other thing, too, you've, you've hit on it there. The door comes open and the firefight goes down and in come the bad guys and they're wearing all white. That's, yeah. I mean, that's a total contrast. And if you notice it, the rebels are wearing gray and black, and the stormtroopers are in white with black accents. You know, and I had never, it had, again, you know, the things I had never paid that much attention to until watching it for a, you know, a critical reason. But I'm like, now that's a real interesting contrast in things there, isn't it? Because you, you, you know, typically the bad guys wear the black hats. Westerns taught us this. Yeah. But in this case, there were what we think are the evil because of the music and everything is the the white. They're wearing the white, you know, in in the firefight there. Oh yeah, storm, the stormtroopers wearing white. Uh... Just from a, I like that from a sci-fi point of view because there's plenty of movies where the villains look like villains. I think of the yeah. orcs in Lord of the Rings. It's like, well, they're nothing but evil. But like the stormtroopers wearing white, it's like you know white is a very non-threatening color. If these guys were to you know a government wouldn't go out of their way to look uh, frightening if they're trying to administer administrate over a Good point. people. So I don't. So yeah, them wearing white is uh, you know it'd be like if they were just wearing camouflage green or or, or <laughs> tan or something. Yeah, yeah, it's in the, and they make pretty quick work of the rebels that they're fighting against there. And then through the door comes, I don't know, you said the, the score is the most iconic thing from Star Wars. It's hard to pick the one thing. I don't know if it gets much more Star Warsy than Darth Vader walking in the, over you know the dead bodies, essentially. That's that's pretty hardcore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something. I mean, that's uh, Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, he absolutely is. I mean, uh, in terms of like a, you look at one character, it's like a toss up between like, you know, the droids and Darth Vader. But you just you see that outline of the helmet and you mm-hmm. just think, you know, that, that's Darth Vader. You see an outline of Han Solo's head. You might not recognize it, but you see an outline of, you know, Darth Vader's head. Like, I know exactly what that is and what he's about. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, he just, you, you hear that labored breathing and the way he steps in. You don't know anything what this guy's about at all. The first thing you see him do is begin to interrogate people. You know, and and you know he he tears the he tells him to tear the ship apart. He grabs that guy by the throat and basically crushes his neck with his hand. Yeah. I'm like, man, that's bad, bad news right there. And yeah. helped tremendously by that booming voice that James Earl Jones has. Oh yeah, James Earl. I mean, you can't. Oh yeah, James Earl Jones, like recognizable sounds. It's definitely just you know that you can't beat that voice. Uh, or I mean. Uh, uh, Lucas's first choice was Orson Welles, uh, who would have been perfect mm-hmm. for, for for Darth Vader. He, he has, he absolutely has that voice. I don't know how Welles, maybe Welles passed or whatever, but then going to a James Earl Jones, uh, the, that was a good call. Lucas has always told that story as he decided to not ask Welles because he felt like that voice was so recognizable that people wouldn't, it, they'd be taken out of the movie by realizing mm-hmm. that that was his voice and it clearly wasn't him. Because he's not, you know, this tall, foreboding yeah. guy, and so he didn't want to be—he didn't want him taken out of the film, and so he went with James Earl Jones because Jones has that deep timber, that dark voice, and you know, just can do all that stuff. And uh, yeah, and as, and I'd love to hear James Earl Jones tell that story because he says, you know, I'm—I was born in Mississippi, raised in Michigan, used to be a stutterer, and I'm classically trained, so I have this real weird inflection on all my words, and so it's—it's <laughs> it's neat to hear it. But he does, he talks like. Somebody behind a mask would, would talk, and of course it's all affected and everything. But the, it's it's a neat introduction, and we we meeting people here. We meet the rebels, we meet the empire. We also meet Princess Leia at this point. You know, I don't know a kid on Earth that grew up watching this that didn't automatically go hubba hubba <laughs> when you see this woman in in white, right? I mean, she's uh, she's pretty striking. Oh yeah, she's uh, you know that this is definitely you know along with all this other stuff Star Wars created, they created the. Uh, 
prototypical female action hero in yeah. this film. I'm looking. I'm trying. I'm thinking back of movies before 1977. If there's been a female action hero like this, I mean, you know, then you have uh, she, Princess Leia, probably sets the stage for you know for uh, for Ripley. Yep. And later on for Sarah Connor and Uma Thurman and Kill Bill and so on. I think I think the Sarah Connor in particular is a big influence on it. Uh, the uh, the the Ripley one has, has its whole, I mean, that's got so many people that weighed in on that and made that happen that it's, it's hard to tell who, you know, where it comes from or whatever, but, uh, definitely Sarah Connor. I got a lot of that mm-hmm. you're thinking about this, this time and thinking about Terminator, but, uh, but you know, boy, such a young person too, you know, Carrie Fisher was like 19 when she shot this. I mean, mm-hmm. she's a kid and especially compared to everybody around her. And I don't know, you, you hear her, you know, Give that you know, weak uh, excuse, like I'm, I'm just on a diplomatic mission, <laughs> and of course he cuts her off in the middle of it. And I don't know, it's just, it's a it's a good scene because again, it sets up this understanding. If you know nothing about Star Wars, if you can find somebody that knew nothing about it and they came in and they watched it, they read that crawl, you see this opening five minutes, and you know exactly what is happening. But what you don't know is what she was doing with that droid before they they shot her, stunned her, and brought her to Vader. You know, you don't oh, yeah. know what she was doing, and and we didn't even talk about them. C three PO and R two D two are really the intro to so much of the series. They absolutely are, and uh, Lucas did that hundred percent on purpose, entering going into this movie with these two characters. He took that off of uh, uh, Hidden Fortress, uh, Kurosawa's film. He took a lot of the structure of that film, yeah, which is literally just two random guys, and through <laughs> their eyes we see this epic. Uh, adventure involving uh, wars and battles but it's through the eyes of these two very everyman kind of characters he did that except he made it uh, two robots yeah and and they're two non-fighting robots i think it's important to yeah. note they don't at no time do they pick up a weapon do they shoot anybody that's not what they're there to do yeah. you know they are just there to kind of scurry about and to do you know certain things and they're you know we don't know what their purpose is at this point and you know i've, I've seen a lot of the things you know they talk about like you know the minor plot holes in star wars and every movie's got plot holes in it folks whether you you know want to admit it or not they, they all do but the, the one of the funniest ones i've seen is like you know I know they scanned and there were no life forms, but what if they'd just gone ahead and blasted that uh, that escape pod anyway? <laughs> you know, <laughs> n- none of anything else would have happened. <laughs> oh, yeah. They would have never made it to the planet. And this is essentially the uh, providence or happenstance of fate that is happening here because they happen to be passing by Tantooine and they happen to eject out of the ship with this message encoded on R2-D2 and will crash land in this desert planet. And that's our next scene is, uh, you know, everybody go down to the desert planet. And uh, the next bit of this is the hellish shots of Tunisia where they, the, yeah. the production almost died before it ever began. Yeah. Apparently uh, Lucas wanted to do a water planet, uh, <laughs> which he ended up doing in, you know, in uh, uh, episode one and in, in episode two. Uh, but apparently it's like, well, we can't make that work. And I guess at one point they were going to say Jungle Planet, but Francis Ford Coppola was making Apocalypse Now at the time. He's good friends with Lucas. And Coppola said, whatever you do, <laughs> never film a movie in the jungle. Yeah. Never do it. Yeah. So Lucas said, oh, I'll make a movie in the desert. That'll be fine. And apparently it was absolutely hellish. Everyone in the crew got dysentery. Everyone got sick. <laughs> Sets were taken away by the wind and stuff. And it was, you know, it was it was, it was was hell, but it's worth it. Like, because, you know, like I keep saying, real is better. And that desert, you know. Like, it's not like it's clearly not, you know, it's not Arizona. It's not Mexico. That is Tunisia. That is absolutely it does look like an alien world. 
Yeah, I, I, it does, and and it's a striking set too, because the first things we see are the crash landed, you know, droids, and they're just kind of scurrying along the sand. And you talk about the things that don't look like they belong, <laughs> and yeah. and without seeing faces, and this is the the beauty of. Uh, having actors that know how to move in shape. Anthony Daniels' entire performance is really comes from the fact that he knows how to be a mime because 3PO's face never changes. The eyes go on and off, but that's it. They ju- it just turns left and right. That's all he does. And you can see the look on his face like, I am so lost. <laughs> you know? Every time, yeah. The whole time. And it, it's amazing how that works. Oh, yeah. And who who is the plays R2-D2? Is it Kenny Powers? Kenny, Kenny Baker. Kenny Kenny Baker, yeah. I think it was Lucas who said Kenny Baker is uh, essential to these movies and and piloting. It's not it can't just be anyone piloting R two D two. He said Kenny Baker he could make R two D two smile. Yeah, and he's like I don't know how he did it, but he did, and that is absolutely true. R two D two just and with the sound effects of Ben Burt. Uh, you, yes, you know, it, it's a character he never speaks. All he does is make electronic sounds, and yet you know exactly what he's thinking and and or saying. And I, I, I it's like I can't explain it. I know it's amazing, isn't it? That you know, I, I, you hear him talk about it, and it's like, well, they said, okay, this is going to be a happy beep, so I just kind of bounce around like I was happy inside. <laughs> you know, you said, that, you know, you had to do something, <laughs> so this was all I could come up with, and I thought, what a great uh, performance. But again, they bring us in because these are the guys that are are into this, and we don't know why they're there. We don't know what they're doing. We just know that they're being chased, and we're curious as to what it is she was saying on that message and we're going to find out more about that but we're getting introduced to all of this world and all of this that's happening and you see the empire come down and start looking for them now this is something i know a lot of folks don't care for i know you you said you've seen the differences in the you know old uh, theatrical editions and the special editions all the added layers of animals and different things that they're doing what you know what do you make of that uh you mean like adding the uh, the dobacks, the yeah. CG uh, rides? Yeah. Well, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, making them making them CG and move. I don't mind. What I mind is the simple fact of why would an <laughs> empire that has access to all manner of spaceships and hover vehicles be using very slow moving lizards to very quickly look for plans to the most important uh, plans in the history of this? empire that's that's my yeah. <laughs> a rare a rare like flaw in the empire of like really that was was that a really good call these because it could not be slower uh but uh but no at making those cg that works however this this i noticed this uh watching them is all the new cg editions it's not just that there's cg in the background is that the cg in the background and they're doing something and making some kind of noise they're not just background thing like it's not just like a, a do back just chilling back, you know, its head kind of moving. It's, it has to make like a, a yawn or yeah. something that tells you, hey, look at look at me. I'm a CG, uh, you know, uh, revision. That I don't like. Is When it's just something in the background, I, I don't mind. But that when it draws attention to itself, it's like, hey, look at this, look at this uh, new effect. That I don't like. I, I agree with that statement. And I think you've got to understand, too, the reason these were done were to give people an idea of here's what this might look like. In, you know, in the coming future, in the very near coming future, hmm. you know, this is what our new ones are going to be. So, but I'm with you. If it's there in the background just to be there, then it adds ambiance. That makes sense. If it's there trying to gather my attention, well, I don't want it to gather my attention. I'm trying to watch what's happening on the screen. Oh yeah, yeah. like you walk, <laughs> yeah, you walk past a house with a dog in the fence. The dog, the second you look at the dog, dog doesn't just start bark, barking. It's just you know, it's just chilling. 
Right. It doesn't have to always be doing something. Exactly. Yeah. It, it doesn't always need to be so animated. I think is is the, the, my idea too. But you know, I'm fine with it because it, again, it's moving this story, and I'm with you. I don't know why they chose, uh, you know, dinosaurs to roll around <laughs> on, but you know, whatever. I guess it. And part of that too, though, to be the Star Wars apologist for a minute, if we're to believe what we're to understand about the Empire here, they're so all encompassing and powerful that they would have stormtroopers that are trained to be able to, you know, handle those kind of. <laughs> you know, I guess I don't know. I mean, that that's yeah. one possible explanation that that could be out there. But beyond that, though, yeah, um, yeah it it just adds something. But again, it's adding layers in, and we're seeing that this is not something they just didn't just roll down on the uh, planet, and then all of a sudden they found what they were looking for. Oh yeah, yeah, and. I guess we move forward to the next bit is where the droids get taken captive um, uh, or kidnapped or droid napped, as I guess it would be, um, by the little Jawas, um, scavengers. You know, uh, I grew up, you know, not far from a good bit of rural area and stuff, spent a lot of time out there. And I know I've seen a lot of scavenger animals in my time. <laughs> and so I always when I see these things, I just think about all the really weird stuff I've seen running by and kind of picking up stuff off the side of the road. You know, these are just drunk collectors and at the time my point of reverence for this Kurt growing up was Sanford and Son Uh, I (laughs) I just thought these people were like Sanford and Son (laughs) oh yeah the the Jawas they are the first alien creature that we see in this Mm -hmm. uh, Star Wars franchise and it's a great shot of how they are discovered and the the shot of R2-D2 just walking you know uh, rolling down the canyon and hearing these noises and just seeing these Bright eyes, and, and as I understand it, the movie was up for Best Picture. And when they show, you know, a clip of Star Wars for Best Picture, they showed that scene, which is R two and these Jawas. <laughs> and it's weird when you th- like when you think about movie history, is that it was absolutely original because there's nothing human on screen. You're yeah. only looking at fantasy creatures, and you buy it as fantasy creatures, and just there's just there is nothing like that. You like you, you just kind of like that's a moment where you just you know you can take a second if you hit pause, you just be like you know. Not like it's bad, but it's like, geez, what am I? What am I? Look at what I'm watching. I cannot yeah. like oh, this is as, this is as fantastical as movies can get. Yeah, I can't believe I'm actually you know looking at something like this. And you know something else there too. We talked before about the performance of Kenny Baker and Ben Burt is part of that too. The performance he gives because R2's doing what all of us are doing. He's worried about rolling <laughs> through that canyon and he's got that little sound <laughs> and I don't know I just, I've always thought that was so cute I was like yeah that's exactly what he should sound like at this point and uh, that he's worried and he gets blasted and they get taken away and it all, this all leads us up though to the next point and that's where they get purchased by this seeming nobody you know right. Luke, Luke Skywalker on the screen here oh yeah but before that I want to make mm-hmm. a quick mention of when we're when we're on the sand crawler and we mm-hmm. see all these other droids, that's another scene where I'm talking about, like where it's nothing but these fantastical things. And I just, I love the robots on this thing. Mm-hmm. There's this one robot. Apparently, his name is Gonk. He's <laughs> a, he is, he is a recommissioned trash can. He's, he's, he's like a brown plastic trash can with legs. And I just, I just, I just love that droid. Mm. But yeah. Yeah, I look through this and I, I think about walking through the surplus area of where I work now and seeing like the old dot matrix printers. You know, it's <laughs> like they're just laying around everywhere. It's just piles of stuff. You know? right. But yeah, you're yeah. right. I mean, it gets us in and it introduces us and keeps reinforcing this idea of the alien world, the right. alien world, but without making it so alien that you can't relate to it. You know, yeah. it, it just looks like a desert planet, you know, which what would that look like? Well, I guess it kind of looked like that, you know. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I like that these Jawas—they're so—they're such tiny creatures. Yeah, and yet they have the biggest possible, you know, land roving vehicle of them all. That's the kind of, you know, that that like that's like the opposite of what I think of like the dewbacks and then the yeah. stormtroopers. I just—that's a great like, sci-fi image to me—is that these tiny little things and the biggest possible tank vehicle that I've ever seen. Yeah, of course they that they would roll around in that. You know that yeah that makes total sense, right? You know that's yeah no I'm with you. It makes uh, that's a that's a great observation. But we meet Luke. Skywalker, who is going to be our hero, but at the time he doesn't look like much more than just a, you know, farm boy. And I, I think he's getting ready to go take on the Cobra Kai, you know, in that outfit he's got on. <laughs> I mean, that is definitely a gi that he is wearing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. Luke is just. Uh, I think yeah, Christopher Nolan was talking about Luke Skywalker in terms of like an important cinematic character. Is that everyone thinks everyone wants to be Han Solo, mm-hmm. but. In reality, we're all Luke Skywalker. He is a very relatable character in every sense, just in terms of the way he behaves and so on. And and yeah, he is just a, a fantastic character. Apparently, Luke Skywalker went through with tons of variations when Luke when uh, Lucas was writing this thing. At one point, he was going to be a dwarf character. Yeah. At one point, he was going to be called Luke Star Killer. He was going to be like an aged uh, general that they just that that uh, helps the uh, the Rebel Alliance, and so they changed it to. Uh, this 20-year-old kid, Luke Skywalker. Yeah, no, I, lo- I love it, too. And you also set up, too, that he's living with his aunt and uncle. Like, just through simple dialogue, he just calls to them. You know, uh, yeah, Ambrew, okay, I, he wants this, okay. And so, you know, he and his uncle are buying these droids to help them on their moisture farm. Now, I, <laughs> as a kid, I grew up thinking that was just something that was made up for the you know the the movie but having now worked at an agricultural mechanical school for a long time (laughs) that's a real thing you know in arid areas there are people that do farming for things like wheat and grain and stuff that doesn't require as much moisture as some other types of of uh, agriculture and there's a science to it and all this stuff and so i was like oh that they that's an actual real thing i don't know i always thought that little detail was neat but they you know they're kind of picking out the droids and it's the funniest thing happens here and i've got to ask you is it happenstance or is it uh fate or did r2 do something to the little red droid because they buy <laughs> c3po and they buy this little red thing that's not r2d2 who of course he's over there freaking out and then the red one blows a gasket <laughs> you know <laughs> Did he set that uh, up? I think that's just fate, but R2... <laughs> yeah. I think that is just fate, but R2, yeah, I wouldn't put it past him to <laughs> sabotage. Well, you know, he could have been... You know, who knows what he was doing while he was on that sand crawler? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's... I don't know. You just, The more you learn about that character, too, as, as the saga continues, it's not... He's not necessarily innocent. So he's always kind of no. into something. So, I don't know. I've always thought that was funny. But it is fate that, that 3PO and R2-D2 are kept together, and... The, the uncle gives an, an order there or, or a, a construction to Luke that is never followed. And had it have ever been, again, mm-hmm. points when the entire saga could have changed, wipe their memory and get them ready to work tomorrow. Yeah. And if that had happened and they had just been set on the farm, then, you know, hope would have been lost, right? Yeah, it wouldn't have happened. Stormtroopers would have shown up at the homestead and wiped them all out and, uh, and yeah, movie over. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard hard to think about that, right? That it's you know that that would have been it. But in the midst of cleaning them up, he stumbles across part of that little recording, and it's "Help me, Obi Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope." I mean, again, you know, all the lines you can think of in this film, but that's one that always sticks out. And it yeah. it's in it's again, it's bringing us through Act One here. You know what is going on? What is happening here? We and we're we're in the same. Uh, 
spot as Luke here. He has no idea what he's you know getting into here. He has no clue. Even though he's having this whole conversation with 3PO about the rebellion and all this, and this is the first time you get this sense of like, okay, so the Empire rules the galaxy, but clearly they're not you know, all in control because look at everything that's falling apart around them. Right. You know, it looks like they're losing their grip. You know, we had John said it in the plot summary there and you're starting to see it. And apparently he Luke has aspirations to, you know, go to the rebel academy, I guess it is, and fight for the rebellion. I'm like, man, the rebellion is so organized. They have their own academy and it's allowed to exist. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Most of the time, that's the first thing to get squashed is the military academy. (laughs) You don't allow those to exist if you want to maintain control. Yeah. You know, just just a thought. But I don't know. I, I like the, the introduction of all that, though, and all that exposition just rolls us into what is going to be the main plot and how, how are we going to get through this plot, and we're going to get Luke set on his journey. It's a great way to set up the climax of Act 1. Oh, yeah, and of course, in that uh, right after that scene, we have uh, Luke sitting down at the dinner table yeah. with, uh, with uh, Aunt Beru and uh, Uncle Owen. And uh, I was listening to a commentary, and they pointed out how that scene is one of the only kind of like uh, – not it's it's a it's a different scene for Star Wars. Like they're just sitting at a dinner table having a meal. Like yeah. they're not there's nothing you know they're not talking about the the plot necessarily. They're just kind of talking about you know I was going to go into Tosh Station pick up some power converters or whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the, that's where we get the first mention of uh, uh, Luke's dad and uh, whoever Obi Wan Kenobi is. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like literally that I love the line. It's like I said. It's tough to think about these movies without, you know, trying to forget the rest of the films. But when Aunt Beru says, you know, you can't expect him to stay on the farm. He's too much. You know, he's got too much of his father in him. And Uncle Owen's, yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. Exactly we, that foreboding moment, and you don't know what that means, but you get the sense of that there's some, there's much more to this guy than what we're being led on, right? Oh yeah. And I wonder, looking back at Attack of the Clones, if you look at some of the stuff Anakin does. On Tatooine with the Sand People, I think that's what Uncle Owen's talking about. Like, because like that's a pretty evil thing that Anakin ends up doing. Yeah, and so. and, and we, I mean, we should just say it now. You know, no matter what Lucas ever tells you, he didn't know. He didn't know he was going to ever make another one of these, except for on the no. cheap. So yeah. all those stories were built around what had already been, and and so again, that's you know, if you know your stuff, you can ride around it and make it seem like, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I had that planned out thirty five years ago. Yeah, right. So, but oh, yeah. but you're <laughs> right. But that's good to know, and that's good knowledge to have as we head into prequel. To Territory, and you see these films starting to tie together a little bit. But it, it is a good setup because it sends <clears throat> Luke um, out of the room, of course, to go back to you know watch his droids and all this kind of stuff. But then he has removed the restraining bolt off of uh, um, R2-D2 to, to in hopes to see that whole message earlier, and it just goes away. And, of course, R2 uses that moment to escape. To, yeah. to go away, to go looking for Obi-Wan Kenobi. And that's when Luke you know, says, ah, we're going to get up early in the morning and go find him because you know, if, if he's talking about old Ben or whoever he's talking about, we got to go and, and figure this out because I'm going to get it if you know, he gets away, right? And that brings us to the really the climax of Act 1, and that's the search for Obi-Wan and that whole uh, attack by the Sand People and all that stuff. And yeah. um, I've always – the Sand People have always freaked me out, Kurt. Just oh, yeah. a weird-looking elephantine-type individual. Oh yeah, absolutely. From the first time I saw them, even looking at them now, they've always struck me as like they definitely do strike me as like 
if you were in Tatooine and you saw the sand people, it's like you got to run the other way. Like they're yeah. they're just and there's like there's the sound and the sound was it like I, I just found out the sound is just the sound of a mule. Yeah, uh, being a, <laughs> pulling something up the stairs, but it is so t- frightening when Luke's looking through the binoculars and all of a sudden the thing pops up right in front of him and uh, and you know shaking the. Uh, the stuff is such a terrifying thing. It's one of these things also where uh, where it's wearing a mask of like uh, every time there's something in a movie like that wearing a mask and was like, what the hell does it look like underneath? And <laughs> yeah. I pretty, probably don't want to know what it looks like <laughs> underneath because yeah, because it's yeah, just the idea of like if it's having to cover itself up, that's not something I want to see. But it's growling yeah. and howling like that, yeah, and beats him up with the stick, and of course gets scared off by this other odd looking creature coming out of the you know the rocks in a yeah. brown robe and when we see him walk up and he you know puts the hand on Luke's head or whatever and then sees the droid and flips that hood back Alec Guinness Obi-Wan Kenobi I mean uh what a what a presence to have in yeah. this film I don't know if you've seen much of Alec Guinness's previous work before this Alec Guinness uh yeah. uh I think actually the only film of his I have seen is the movie that he won the Academy Award for, which is uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, well, then oh. you then you've seen a fabulous film. So I, I was yeah. actually going to say, if you've seen that, you've seen some of the best work the guy ever did. That's a fabulous film. Maybe another day we could we could even do that one. That would be a fun one to look at because it's so classic. But I mean, the guy has a presence on the screen, yeah. no doubt. And he was a get at the time. Of course, I know him from that. I know him from Lawrence of Arabia too. That's another great film. That's right. That he's in, but. Uh, he just has such a presence. And at the time, I mean, you know, the, the stories are is that he just thought this was a joke and did it for the pay and because his daughter <laughs> thought the script was good. And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's kind of like Donald Pleasance with Halloween. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, okay, my kid kind of liked Assault on Precinct 13. I'll do that. You know, <laughs> and, and it turns into be, you know, this iconic moment of his career. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but he, he turns in such a good performance. And amongst mostly you amateur actors here, you know, Hamill had worked on television. He'd never done a film. Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford were bit players. If anything, you know, none of these people had really done things that people would know them from, uh, you know, besides like Peter Cushing and stuff like that. And even he, you know, did genre films. So, uh, to have Alec Guinness, uh, on the, the set was a big deal to a lot of people, especially to Lucas, who really admired him. And I like his performance, too, because we're led to believe up at this point that the old hermit is somebody to be scared of, right? Kind of like the old hermit on Family Guy, if you've seen any of that. <laughs> and, I mean, it's just sort of our modern sensibilities there. But very quickly, you realize that, no, he's uh, he's just an old man. Yeah. Yeah, Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, that's the thing. There's only there's only four characters that show up in every movie. It's Obi. It's uh, C-3PO, R2D2, Darth Vader. I mean, Anakin Skywalker and Obi Wan Kenobi. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that character is such an important and great character. And and, and you talk about like a, a an archetypal character, like the sage character. There's like yeah. three like you know uh, big characters like that. There's like Merlin the Wizard, Gandalf the Wizard, and uh, and Obi Wan Kenobi in terms of like a a, a, a sage character like that, a wizened uh, old warrior, and I, yeah, they're just a great character. And uh, and every every little bit that we find out about him, he just becomes more and more fascinating. In terms, of you think like obviously when we didn't know what his backstory was, you're thinking about you know how did the, how the hell did this guy end up here with yeah. the stuff that he can do and the stuff that he knows, and you know all of a sudden you know they're you know, why is Princess Leia calling for this guy? Who is this guy? There's just so many things. What the hell was that sound that he made that scared off the uh, the, the sand people and so on. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, there's there's so much unknown about him. That's the thing. That's what really gets you is that you don't know what this guy's all about. You just realize that for some reason he's important. And when we finally get you know back to his old hut, you know where he says, "Hey, we got to get out of here because the sand people come back and you know they're they're strength in numbers and all this stuff." So he's hiding Luke out, and he gets to see the. Um, the video or the little, you know, the video file, like that's a lot. I said the flash video that Archie's <laughs> hanging up to there. So he, he watches that and it brings, you see this sort of flood of memories come across his face, Yeah, you know, like, wow. And he begins to tell Luke a lot of the backstory that, you know, I fought with, you know, he, she says, Oh, you fought with my father in the clone wars. And it's like, what, what the heck's the clone wars, you know? And, oh, yeah. and then, he talks about, you know, tells Luke later, yeah, I knew your father and I knew the man that murdered your father and all this, this stuff. And he shows him the lightsaber that all that moment, those five, six minutes in that hut are just fantastic because there's so much exposition happening. But at no point am I ever bogged down with it. I'm the, it's just sort of kinetic. It just rolls from one piece to the next. And that's oh, yeah. hard I, to do with something that's totally alien like this. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that scene, as the MMM guys pointed out, they were saying during that scene. Uh, if you were marathoning these movies, and if you went up to, if you got up to go to the washroom for that six minutes, you would be lost for the next twelve hours. Yes, because that is, in terms of like backstory and exposition, that is the most important scene in the entire series. In terms of Luke, Vader, Obi Wan, and eventually Leia, uh, and yeah, that scene, all of that scene, when uh, when he tells that story again, just like your imagination just starts clicking when he talks about these Jedi Knights in the Force. You're just thinking, like, well, what the hell is a Jedi Knight? And then they show you the lightsaber. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what the hell is... Uh, <laughs> cutting, you know, moving on to, you know, uh, Mos Eisley. You look at that lightsaber, it's like, well, what the hell does that do? Yeah. And then in Mos Eisley, you say, oh, that's what it does. <laughs> yeah, it does exactly what it sounds like. It's the coolest weapon ever. Let's just go ahead and say it now. There's oh, yeah. never been a cooler thing. Everybody... That I knew after you know the Star Wars films and stuff, you, you found a long stick, you found a piece of cardboard. Everybody made a lightsaber out of something. Nowadays, you can just make one on your computer like it's no big deal. But oh, yeah. everybody thought the lightsaber was cool. There's no way that cannot be cool. And yeah. and it's just and it, it, and I love how he sets it up. It's like yeah, it was a you know a, a more elegant uh, weapon for a more civilized age. And you just wonder like, well, what what that place looked like. You know, oh, yeah. and, and he it, says the old republic. He says, yeah, like, he just keeps going. Like, what the hell is the old republic? What are they in now? You know, how, yeah. when did this Clone Wars happen? What's a Clone War? Like, oh yeah, all these questions yeah. that they set up, but but not confusing. It just gets your imagination going in the best way. Exactly. Yeah, and the whole oh, you know, of the rebellion against the Empire. You know, the, like Luke had set up earlier with three PO. You know, that the, there's all this stuff happening, and so they're starting to put it together. And Luke is the one that puts it together. Said, wait a minute. If they think these droids belong to you and the Empire's looking for them, that's going to lead them back home. And he races back to home. And one of the scariest scenes of Star Wars is the home front burned and the bodies of his aunt and uncle dead on the farm. I mean, that's just gruesome to think about. I mean, that's a pretty gross-looking skeletal shot there. Oh, yeah, that's... uh that's right out of the Searchers, John Ford's movie. It's an identical scene. John Wayne comes, John Wayne comes home and finds the entire home burned by uh, you know uh, wild engines in that film. And yeah, that scene in in it's way more gruesome in, in Star Wars. You don't even see the violence, but yeah, the the smoking blackened skeletons. I remember that. Yeah. That is very. That's one of the most. That's one of the more. That's maybe the most violent, gruesome image in all 
uh, you know, six films, excluding, you know, Anakin burning on the volcano there. Yeah. I've always thought about that. Like, they're in a pose. They were clearly, like, shot while they were running away, shot in the back. Just like, oh, it just, you know, that also sets up how, you know, well, that's this is what the Empire is willing to do to accomplish their goals. That really does set up the threat of the Empire. Exactly. And it makes Luke's choice even more, you know, he was, well, can, I can't go with you right now. Because Obi-Wan says, hey, why don't you come and be a Jedi Knight? Which I'm like, what the heck is that? And what does that mean? <laughs> you know, he doesn't, he can't just run off with you, dude. He's got, he's got work to do, right? He's, it's the answer any normal person in that situation, normal, would say. But now his whole family's gone. He's got nothing. And he hated being there to begin with. And now he sure enough ain't got anything left because, you know, you burn the farm down and, and kill everybody in it. Well, that's that's kind of it. And so he's like, yep, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I want to you know, go with you. And that sets them off on the next piece. And you've already talked about Moss Eisley. Let's just get into it, man. Yeah. Like the bad Navy port of all time, right? <laughs> just <laughs> just a, not a cool place. I've, you know, that line about, you know, wretched hive of villainy and all that been, oh, yeah. been laid on Washington, D.C. in this country so many yeah. times. And aptly so. Uh, and for any place that you just don't want to be. Like that became a synonymous phrase with anywhere you don't need to be right now. Oh, yeah. but, it's the Deadwood of Star Wars. There you go. Very good. Very good analogy. Not somewhere you're going to go hang out. But if you're looking for a fast way out of town, probably the kind of place where people that won't ask questions and I'll take your cash oh, will yeah. be. And that's when we, you know, we go through the whole cantina. Now, there's something that has never I've never understood. Maybe you can explain it to me. They walk into the bar. And the bartender's like, get your droids out of here. We don't serve their kind. I'm like, what's up with the droid racism? I've never understood <laughs> that. What is that all about? I don't know. Maybe it's just they don't have oil in stock uh, in this bar. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I like that, 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 you know, we don't serve droids. You know, it's, it's, you know they, they don't make a reference to that ever again in terms of, like, a, there's a hatred of droids. But that sets up a, a, cult, a nice culture yes. of Star Wars, that there is, you know, the, the only element of, like, racism we see in this you know series is the fact that you know if this bar doesn't serve droids yeah uh, but I, I always like oh i thought it was great too and and you know you've already talked about the the lightsaber comes out kenobi cuts off the dude's arm and all that stuff that's a great scene because i mean it just lets you know that obi-wan kenobi is maybe an old dude but he is not to be trifled with because oh, yeah. when that guy pulls that gun out, it's, I mean, it's on. You know, he gets that, that lightsaber out and puts him down quick. And as a matter of fact, I think he kills two of them. Then he takes yeah, out he, the guys next to him and the guys and the furry guy's arm. I think he kills both of them, right? The pig nose guy off, and the other guy. They're definitely both dead. You just see the one arm. But yeah, when he, when he, when he takes out that lightsaber and, and, and slices them down, it's like, yeah, all we want is, you know, old guy not to be trifled with. And that scene is like, Ahead of its time, when I was watching it just now, being a huge Tarantino fan, I thought that is like right out of Django Unchained in terms of like a <laughs> snap into violence like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and what definitely stands out watching it now is that is the most, you know, violent scene in all of Star Wars. That the you know the fact that they changed it up for the rest of the series, but they cuts off the arm and there's blood. They change yeah. it up in the rest of the series where you know a lightsaber burns as it cuts, so there is no blood. But uh, that's always a striking image. You see the, the the severed arm on the ground, blood all over it, reaching for a gun. Uh, well, and you hear and, the, you hear that blood curdling death yell too in the background, yeah. and and then everybody goes back to business. I'm like, this is like an old western. You shoot oh, yeah. somebody, and everybody just walks away. We're gonna get to that motif in a minute, but that that's <laughs> what happens. And then we're introduced to maybe. I don't know. The, uh, one of the coolest characters ever introduced in film history, Han Solo. 
right? Harrison Ford with that sneer. You know, he doesn't smile, he sneers at the screen. And just that don't care attitude of Han Solo is uh, it's so inviting and engaging to, to watch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is one of the, like, uh, yeah, Empire, oh, no, what is it? Yeah, Total Film Magazine listed mm-hmm. the top 100 film characters, and both Indiana Jones and Han Solo were in the top 10. And, yeah, Han Solo is just, uh, I, uh, it's always weird when I think about my own, like, a slight problem with Star Wars is that it takes a long time for all of the characters to show up. Like, it's like an hour into the movie before Han Solo and Chewie show up. Yeah. And yet, when when Han Solo shows up, it's it's pretty much the Han Solo show for the rest of the movie. He really does steal that film in the best way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that I, you know, you can't beat that, that character, the ultimate, just, he's a, a Western character, a swashbuckler, star pilot, you know, smuggler, uh, the attitude. I love how, he, uh, uh, Harrison Ford was cast. He was in American graffiti, but uh, I guess Lucas didn't want to use him. And, I think it was Harrison Ford. What is a carpenter? And he was doing some work in the casting room when they were, casting star wars and it was just a simple thing of hey harrison can you read uh lines can you read the han solo lines when yeah. we're auditioning uh luke skywalker and it was just you know they were just looking at him it's like the way he's just kind of uh you know he wasn't like uh he was saying the lines in a way that was just like what about him for han solo what do you think because there think, were a lot of people up for han solo yeah i think it was either de palma or uh coppola one of one of lucas's buddies that said yeah you ought to just use him you know that he's he's fine. You know, and that's the thing you'll find if you you watch the backstory of this. Lucas got talked into a lot of stuff because he just didn't know and he couldn't make up his mind. Like they were going to totally replace Anthony Daniels' voice for three PO, and they brought in Mel Blank. You know, the man of Looney Tunes, a thousand voices, and he said you should just use Tony's voice. It sounds pretty yeah. good. <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny how how that you know happenstance again works out. And you know, I know Ford has has kind of come and gone on how he feels about this character stuff. I know he's going to be in, in episode seven in some role or another. So that's, you know, there, but th- he'll, he'll always tell you this made him, this got him Indiana Jones, which really made him this massive action star. But if it hadn't been for this, he'd have never got that. He'd have been bit part in it and, you know, carpentering on the side. <laughs> and for what right. I understand, he was a horrible carpenter. So it's a good thing. <laughs> acting worked out, but no, yeah. you let, you love the scene. You love the deal. They strike. It's like, no questions asked. You get us to Alderaan. Cause he knows that's Leia's home planet. And we will, we'll figure out what goes on from there. You, we'll get you paid. And, and it also lets you in on a secret about uh, Kenobi's character too. He has obviously been hanging out on Tatooine for a long time. Right. Hmm. But immediately when he's, you know, gets the information from Leia and he knows where he's got to go, he can promise that they'll pay off and they'll do, even though he hasn't been there and hasn't asked them permission. He's got that kind of gravitas and he knows he can walk in a room and go, you need to pay this guy 15,000 whatever's because he got us here safe. And he could just say, it, you know, that it's it's done. You know, and yeah. he can he can take care of it. I'll, you like that he's got that kind of presence too, and you know then the infamous Han and Greedo scene that it, we learned that Solo has got a bounty on his head because he dropped his he's a smuggler he dropped a shipment for something named Jabba the Hut, which in the original version you didn't know what it was. You'll get a little scene up here in a minute. We'll talk about. But, I, you know, there's a lot of controversy around who shot first, right? And I think in the current version, they yeah. both sort of shoot simultaneously. I have never, ever had a problem with the idea that Han Solo just shot him under the table. Because, again, I grew up watching Westerns, and that happened. If somebody was coming after you like that, they weren't there to talk to you. They were there to shoot you. So if you had a chance to shoot them, shoot them. 
<laughs> you know, uh, yeah. what is it? The guy on the in Die Hard tells John McClane the next time you know uh, you have the chance to kill somebody, do it. And that yeah. even comes out of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Eli Wallach says, hey, "Next time you're going to shoot, shoot. Don't talk." Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I've always loved the fact that he just blows him away, flips the bartender a coin, and you know, walks out. Sorry about the, the mess. Yeah, I mean, what a great, uh, great scene. But it does set up a scene stealing performance. It does, and yet of all the things that Lucas wanted to change for the special edition, I mean, that changing that scene, it is the defining moment of that character in popular cultures. That That's the kind of guy Han Solo is. While the guy is talking, he's gesturing to his gun, taken out of the holster, setting mm-hmm. it to kill, ready to kill this guy. Uh, and... It's like that 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 to me that is why Han Solo is one of the greatest characters that he's all these things you know he's suave debonair guy but he's also the guy who uh, he is the man with no name he's Clint Eastwood in, in the Leone films he will shoot first uh, and yeah apparently people have analyzed the you know the theatrical cut it's very clear you know his laser bolt comes out first Han Solo shot first yes. and uh, they literally in the special edition they changed it that Greedo fires and misses <laughs> point blank three feet away. <laughs> And he misses yeah. somehow, and, I, and Han Solo fires. I can tell you, I have done some shooting with handguns in my time, and I am horrible with them. I will tell you now. I, cannot, I don't own one, so I can't shoot one really well. I just I just stick to shotguns. That's my thing or whatever. But even I could hit something three feet across the room from me. Uh, I think Ray Charles probably could have hit him you know, at that point. But uh, a, an unnecessary change. But it, the whole point is still there, and it's still intact that Han is someone that will shoot you under the table because he just doesn't care. And you know, more and more, they're going to play with the fact that he just doesn't care until the moment that he actually does. He just doesn't want to, but he, he does, you know, and, and you've set it up perfectly. He's the man with no name. You know, it's, I think about that scene and it was a fistful of dollars. Like you're going to need five coffins and eh, make that six yeah. you know, or whatever. And so it's a great moment, but he drops that line to Chewie, go get the ship ready. You know, this will really clear me with Jabba. And then we get the added scene of him with Jabba the Hutt or what I call Jabba, the really awful CGI slug. Um, this is hard. <laughs> I didn't yeah. need this because he essentially, yeah, repeats, that's, uh... he repeats the same dialogue. And Literally. I, I was like, we did, we did not need this at this moment. Yeah, uh, I wonder, the, I mean, that's, that's a weird one in terms of, uh, I like, I mean, watching it at the time, 97, I was like, oh man, Jabba's going to be an awesome. But the, if you look at the 97 version, literally, that Jabba the Hutt looks, his body shape looks nothing like the Jabba we got in, in 83. In subsequent DVD releases, they changed him up to look more like the Jabba we get in episode one, and it looks fine. But that scene... The original scene is there is no slug. It's a guy. It's just some guy. It's just a fat dude. It looks guy, like somebody. Jabba who, the Hutt. He actually is, look, he looks like Sam from the you know the Night's Watch. He absolutely <laughs> does. <laughs> yeah. So he totally is him. So and he's not a bad actor too. Like you look that no. the, uh, that scene of you know just some guy in a you know a, a, a British accent. He's some crime boss. I I've never had a problem with uh, with that scene. If it it, it would have been would have been interesting to see if. Uh, it, how it would work if it was just you know some human crime boss? Obviously, they took it to a, a fantastic place. One definite thing I got to talk about that mm-hmm. sucks ass about that <laughs> special edition is they put Boba Fett in the scene. Yes, now again, oh. being uh, nine years old, I thinking, oh man, there's Boba Fett. But watching it now, it's like first, like I didn't know, like it makes Boba Fett look like he's just Jabba's bodyguard. Yeah, the whole thing of Boba Fett is that I love is that he's like the evil version of 
Han Solo. He's a guy who just he's he's scouring across the universe all the time. He's never in one place for more than a day. So just to put him there, it's like why it just it yeah, I, I I've always uh, hated that. If Han Solo is Clint Eastwood, then Boba Fett is Lee Van Cleef. Mm-hmm. In all of those Leone films. That's exactly right. Until you shove him into scenes that he has no business being in. He's yeah. a bounty hunter. He should be out collecting bounties. There I don't you know go. if you've watched much of Dog the Bounty Hunter, but he don't sit still much. That's because he's got rent to pay. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's that that's not a great paying gig. So you got you gotta work. And I'm sure in the future it wasn't or in the long time ago space, whatever that we're here, it wasn't that great of a gig either. So but uh, you know, I, again when you're younger, you're like, oh cool, right. Yeah, I'm with you. But now it's like yeah, unnecessary to be there. But the Millennium Falcon, now this escape where they get out of that town and they blast off. I love the addition of the thing rising up and blasting off. Because of course they had no way of showing us that in the seventies. It looks amazing now. And one of the coolest spaceships of all time. You gotta admit, I mean it's a freaking hamburger with an olive on the side of it. That's all it is. But it's it is so neat to see this looks like a hunk of crap. (laughs) And everybody talks about how awful it looks, but the thing can move. And it's it reminds me of Guys I knew that were motorheads when I was growing up that had these, I mean, they just looked like pieces of junk. But under the hood, man, when they hit the gas, that thing would take off and fly. And the Millennium Falcon is the same way. Just, I loved it. Loved it. Oh, yeah. The Millennium Falcon, again, the the, the contrast between settings, like, you know, the, the that the Falcon feels like a lived-in uh, ship. It definitely goes back, it definitely harkens back to, like, a Navy thing, of like a pirate uh, ship. It's like... Uh, it, it absolutely feels living. You can you can feel as though the ship's you know probably been it's thirty years old. You almost think like there's there probably is duct tape on the on a couple of dials. So there's somewhere you know they're covering up holes with with plywood. And I love I love that the ship is uh, is a hunk of junk. Literally, but it's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about Empire Strikes Back is that the ship you know is constantly breaking. Uh, 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 yeah, it's an Empire where he literally powers on the ship. It powers back down. He gives it a he gives it a knock against the, the the console and it powers back up again. That kind of stuff. That like they, that ship has so much uh, character. It's a in terms of like movie vehicles. That's like that's up there with the Batmobile and the DeLorean. It's a fantastic oh, uh, ship. Absolutely great, great ship. And we see on this journey a bit that. You know, Luke is starting to go through some Jedi training, and apparently Jedi training is being able to block a shot blinded with a lightsaber. That's I don't know. I, I guess it's the it's the same thing that like you see Mr. Miyagi do and the Karate Kid. You know, wax the floor. You know, <laughs> what does that got to do with me getting my ass kicked? You know, <laughs> after school, Mr. Miyagi. But eventually it pays off. You know, it's, oh yeah. But it also is more Han Solo time because what does he say? He's like hokey religion. You know, eh, you need a good blaster. And we've already. Seen seen that one scene with we didn't even talk about it where vader you know nearly chokes one of the imperial generals to death because oh yeah he makes fun of his religion <laughs> and i'm like man. oh yeah and and it's but it sets you up on this thing you're like man how old is this guy how old oh, yeah. is the old republic what is jedi nightism that it's no longer followed practiced you know you wonder how it died out that's the the elements of the story and it makes it all move along really fast and look nothing's happening right now they're moving through space to go to a place that they don't know is about to be destroyed because that's the the big scene on the death star right they bring they've already interrogated princess leia they know and or she has led them to believe that her home planet is where the rebel base is which it's not now you talk about like having gumption i'm gonna give up my home planet that would be like you kurt going canada 
and then they blow up. <laughs> I mean, really, it's, it's like you can blow away my home. I'm not giving up the cause. Now, yeah. That is in for the cause, <laughs> man. And and that display of force when Tarkin, Peter Cushing, by the way, man, just you Hammer Horror fan, you can't not love that dude. Hmm. Chews up the scenery with her when he says, "Oh, we're gonna go ahead and blow it up anyway." <laughs> you talk yeah. about really bad guy, and then they just obliterate the planet. That is such a great scene. Oh yeah, Grand Moff Tarkin. I definitely want to just to touch on him. Peter Cushing is excellent in this film, and a very absolutely snarling, you know, uh, evil prick villain yes. that, you, that you really hate. <laughs> but I always remember this always stuck in my head watching him uh, back then. Uh, that was rectified in Empire. Is I always had a problem with Darth Vader being told what to do by anyone. Mm-hmm. And whenever, like when when Tarkin says Vader, release him. I always thought. Who are you to tell Darth Vader what to do? He's lucky you're lucky he doesn't choke your ass out. Grandma Tarkin is a really good character, and that is a great moment. He's like, yeah, well, Dantooine's too far away to uh, launch the weapon there, but Alderaan's right over there, so we're going to blow that up, and we'll, then we'll go on and tear, take out Dantooine. Right, which is also not the place that the yeah. Rebel base is. I'm like, not only is that, have they gone to Alderaan, she's not going to try to save her home planet. You know, she she comes up with some lie at the end, and they're like, no, nah, no, nah, we still don't believe you. I, that is amazing to me that, you know, again, the dedication this princess has to her cause is, I don't know, it's it's pretty neat. It's it's uh, neat to watch her go through the, the motions of it, at least. Oh, yeah. And, we definitely got to talk about the Death Star quickly. That is a great oh, sci-fi yes. idea. Yes. Is, you know, the idea of a singular thing that its sole purpose is to destroy an entire planet. That's a great sci-fi uh, conceit. And, well, uh, well, I mean, you know, that got ripped off in, in almost everything, you know, in, oh, yeah. in later later uh, sci-fi, you know, even cartoons, things like that. I mean, there's all kind of Transformers had stuff like that. You know, it's just it's funny how those little staples come forth. But I love the the part about the Death Star is that I think it's best summed up by they arrive at Alderaan on the Millennium Falcon and it's nothing but an asteroid field and they can't find it. And he realizes it's got to be blown away. And uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, when they're warning toward that small moon with the, where the rebel or the Imperial fighters heading, is like, that's not a moon. That's a space station. And this the ominous music and the look on his face like, oh, my God, they've actually done it. You know, I yeah. can't believe it. They've done it. They built this thing. And it's it's just a little, you know, it's just a floating sphere. But, man, when it lights up those that big turbo laser and unleashes, I mean, it destroys a planet in one shot. One yeah. shot. That is, I, I can't even think about you know the kind of power that would have, and that's just to shoot it once. That's not even what it took to get it there. You know that's yeah. that's the other part. It's like wow, you know, I, it's it's amazing, um, amazing plot device that um, Lucas created um, with something very simple. I mean, that is a simple uh, little device, but man, uh, very powerful. And again, establishes if we weren't already in in the tank to understanding it just how um, big and how impossible to beat it's going to seem the Empire is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they are everywhere. I mean, how do, you, how do you defeat that, right? And that's when the next point of the, the plot comes in because they get pulled into the tractor beam and they got to find a way to hide. And I love how... You know, can, you watch Obi Wan Kenobi in this, and he, you can see him playing it so many different ways. 
But for me, this time watching it, when he lays that hole, there are alternatives to fighting in there. It's like he knows all along, well, this is actually probably okay that we wind up on this station because, you know, what you'll learn is, of course, he's going to face off against Vader. Did you get a sense that, you know, knowing what you know about Star Wars, that he kind of knew, well, that's where he is anyway? And so this is this actually works well. This puts my plan into fast motion. Oh yeah, he definitely like he doesn't suggest going back to any other planet. He knows he knows that Vader's on there or someone important. He knows that Leia's probably on that ship. He like he uh, he knows what he's doing mm-hmm. when he's like you know don't run away. Let's move forward. Just be careful. Exactly. And so of course they stow away and you know, can't be found on the ship or whatever. And in that process, they realize wait a minute, this princess we've been after is is in prison on this this space station. We should go rescue her. And I love what it finally takes to get Harrison Ford to move. The thing that would motivate a guy like that, right? You got to pay. <laughs> you know, he's saying, I'm not new. I'm staying right here. You know, and she's rich and she's beautiful and powerful. Oh, okay. You know, what gets any man to move, right? You know, yeah. beautiful, powerful, rich women. So, so you know, it's just it's the way it is. So, but I love the whole chase through the the Death Star here and how they split up. Obi-Wan says, I'll go take out the tractor beam, you know? And it's like, man, you know, how useful is this old guy? You know, he knows, he seems to know about a lot more stuff that old guys shouldn't know about. And it's yeah. one of the many lessons of Star Wars is you, you have to, you can't take things at their face value because there's always so much more underneath the, the cover of the book. Right. Definitely. Yeah. And w- I love the prison breakout. It's it's a great action scene. And I know they've added some to it and, and taken it a little bit long, but I love how they, you know, Luke and uh, uh, Han steal a couple of uh, stormtrooper outfits and put some fake handcuffs on Chewbacca. And then they just, you know, unleash hell inside of that little room. I mean, that's a great gunfight. I, I you know, I liken it, to, and it came years later, but the end gunfight of Unforgiven. Where there's just hmm. bullets flying all over that bar, and it's yeah. in such a small place, reminds me so much of this scene. And I know there's other westerns that have done it before too, but I feel like that's what Lucas is going for here. Is that we're going to have this this great fight, but it's going to be in a real close quarter space because that adds tension to the to the moment. It's not you know so far apart that you can't hit each other. Everybody's standing next to somebody. Oh yeah, it's uh, it definitely adds a lot more tension. That you're not just in the fight on some place you're 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 fighting the enemy on the enemy's home base right uh, so you know it's like if you it's basically it's like any screw up we're all dead and uh yeah also there's one thing i noticed uh, i never caught this line before but when when they put it when luke and han put the uh, stormtrooper outfits on uh luke says i can't see a thing in this helmet and i never occurred to me then but that to me that covers the uh the common complaint of the stormtroopers can't aim for shit because yes. uh, they can't see. It's a look, look. It's a blackened visor. They can't. That, that's why they can't aim. Uh, you know what? I've I've never caught that before, but that is an excellent point <laughs> because we should have already said in all of the gunfights, the one thing you know is that the, the Empire can't hit anything. Like yeah. these guys are terrible shots. You know, uh, Han dead eye shot. Luke pretty decent shot. You know, and it turns out Le- Leia pretty good shot. You know, but uh, yeah, I, I love it. I love that they can't see anything, but that they do explain it with a line. That's great. I never thought about that, Kurt. That's a great catch. So, uh, and a and a wonderful note. Uh, 
to catch him. But yeah, I love the whole bit here, and I'd love you know he goes to rescue her in the little smart aleck line, like you little short, <laughs> you know, <for laughs> stormtrooper, and he has to rip the helmet off, and you know I I'm I'm Luke Skywalker, I'm here to rescue you. I'm like I love the first line out of her uh, mouth is here to rescue me, <laughs> you know. So and then Obi Wan Kenobi, you know, so yeah. I, it totally hooks her into okay, yes, I can follow these people and trust them, and so I don't know, great action scene there in the hallway as they're shooting it out and uh, while Obi-Wan Kenobi is taking out the old tractor beam. And, uh, you know, really that's him sneaking around and just, uh, you know, one knob down and that's it. I'm like, you know, these people have got the worst security on the planet <laughs> that nobody in like, you know, mission control anywhere or they have the worst IT department ever. Nobody's going, hey, uh, anybody notice the tractor beam's not working? You know? <laughs> so, or maybe they said it and like, do you want to go out there and fix it? No, shut up. <laughs> you know, Sit there and play Galaga and be quiet. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Empire is pretty easy to fool and so on. And one of my favorite yeah. bits of, 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 of acting is Han Solo uh, on the radio, uh, faking to be one of the guys. Yeah, yeah it's like they're on, they're on the radio. What the hell was that? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, it's just a web, web, web it's malfunction. Uh, everything, everything's fine. Uh, well, you want to come down? No, no, no. There's a radiation leak, a uh, large leak, very dangerous. Who is this? <laughs> uh, uh, I love that line. Uh, we're, uh, we're fine. We're all, we're, we're fine. We're all fine here. How are How, you? Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's the, the joke, too, is that Ford purposely didn't learn any of the lines so that yeah. he could just flub it like that and, and get through it. And it's a great moment. It's a great character moment. Now, you know, I, <laughs> people bang on Lucas for a lot of stuff. In some ways, it's a good thing he's not more of a, hmm, how do I say, active director with his actors, and he lets them kind of create stuff. Because in this cast, he's got people who are creating these characters. The, yeah. the character of Luke, the character of Han Solo – is created on screen by the two actors portraying them. I mean, those guys are putting as much into it as anything that Lucas has given them. And that's that's one of the, the testaments to how much he trusted them in the work that they were doing. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, yeah, you look at uh, the DVD, it's very clear, looking at literally set footage of Lucas, that he didn't exactly know what he was doing. He knew what he was doing in terms of the camera work and the tech side, but he did not know how to work with actors right so we got actors that uh you know they they know what they're doing and the actors apparently were always making fun of lucas because <laughs> he was just a whore he was a really bad at articulating what he said he only had ever had one direction which was faster more intense That's <laughs> yeah all he ever said <laughs> which is great because in a lot of ways that works i mean i think it i think it serves this story quite well that there's not this over abundance of just too much drama here and there. Everybody's playing the right notes as it's working out here. And you, Obi-Wan, of course, takes out the, the tractor beam, like we said, and then you see that Darth Vader, who has had this conversation with Tarkin, that he is he knows Obi-Wan Kenobi's here. He can feel him. And it's like, okay, so you, you know, these old Jedis apparently can kind of sense each other. They're Spider-Man or something. I don't know. You know <laughs> but, they, but then he meets him in the hallway. And they go for the sword fight. And, I mean, I remember seeing this as a kid going, that may be the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And at that point, it probably was. The lightsaber duel of Obi-Wan and uh, Darth Vader is... A, a very cool scene. And you see why it drags all the stormtroopers over there because, Kurt, you went to school. When people got in a fight, everybody <laughs> dropped what they were doing to go watch that, right? And I'm like, yeah, I totally buy that. That's that's a great, great distraction by Obi-Wan there. Oh, yeah. And that, that calls back to my thing of all the, the variations of kinds of action here. We got something like this, you know, these 
these Bedouin, you know, uh, sand people uh, with, with spears. You got, you know, uh, shoot like Western uh, gunslinger stuff in the cantina. You got the stuff in the sewer with the uh, the the uh, the uh, the sewer creature and the trash compactor. And then you got a you know a, a sword fight with with these two uh, you know dark and light wizard characters. There's all kinds of different stuff happening. And that sword fight is. That's the first sword fight I would have ever seen, and that that's the that 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 is the scene that really makes you you know want a lightsaber in terms of you just you know these lightsabers they can cut through anything except other lightsabers, and that just makes it a very cool thing. I just love the fact that they're the lightsabers are different colors, yeah. And you you can tell a bad guy if if a guy's got a red lightsaber, he's the bad guy. Any other color, they're they're the good guy. Yeah, uh, no, it's a great it's a great moment, and it's good uh, character notation. Again, you, you're seeing what uh, you're seeing these uh, really old men, if you want to say it, go at each other, but they're fighting again. You know, Obi Wan already set it up. You know, it was a it was a weapon from a more elegant age, right? You know, and he's he's setting that up again that these guys that they're not just you know swinging and hacking at each other with it. They're they're almost in like a fencing match or something if you've ever watched any of that it's really cool to, to think about and to see that play out and you see that it's also part of a larger plan because kenobi is trying to give a distraction so the rest of his crew can get back on the falcon and get out of there right and part of his plan is he's going to sacrifice himself and he drops that line if you strike me down i'll be more powerful than you ever knew and like from that moment on like you know now watching this i'm like he is going to totally let this guy kill him for the good of something else you know, and you don't know what he means by that, but it's, I don't know, it's just a really powerful line. It's one of those, uh, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, throughout any kind of philosophy and myth and even, you know, religions and things, the, the sacrifice for someone else's good. And, you know, at the time it looks like the person that, you know, is the winner of the, the battle or whatever, or the, that moment is on top. But in reality, what they've done is just released that person from the mortal coil and now they're you know their spirit they're bigger than that i don't know it's, it's a really cool moment and it's neat to watch him give that grin and smile when he sees out of the corner of his eye oh, that yeah. everybody and then he just pulls that saber up and it's like in submission it's very samurai oh yeah that's yeah. uh that that scene that moment of alec guinness's death i look at that like there's the best supporting actor nomination he got when he looks at luke yes. and he gives a look back he looks back at the corner of his eye looks back at vader's like well that's it he, like you know, it's like you. He he looks at. Him, I was like, well, you lose now because because what I'm about to do is eventually going to be you know cut to you're going down in so many steps after this right here, and uh, yeah, he just raises. He closes his eyes, raises his saber up, and lets Vader hack him right in. Uh, he doesn't hack him in half. He just the, apparently I don't know. I've heard people describe that as that's a force thing that uh, Obi Wan did. He literally you know dissipated his own body or something. Yeah, I, it would have been pretty gory if he just sliced him in half. Yeah, style. exactly. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's that's part of the reason it's done that way. But it's also to play for what we'll hear later is his voiceover as he's telling Luke use the force. You know, as he's in the trench fight and stuff. But it's a great moment. It's such a, a powerful moment, and you're right. It's it's an accented again by a great moment in the score. It's just that you have this bombastic banging score, and then all of a sudden just this little. Duh, moment just to kind of lighten it up for a second when you realize this guy's making the sacrifice and i also love you know knowing the story you look at that look he gives luke and then he gives that look to vader and you're right it's like okay you win now but you're about to lose huge and it's also like okay old friend this one's yours you know because he's already set up that these two know each other we will learn more about what that relationship really was throughout all these films but all we know at this point is that this is the guy that murdered his good friend anakin 
and he's going to let him strike him down too because it's for the greater good. And of course, they escape as part of that. And um, I don't know. I like the little slowdown moment there on the ship when Leia goes over to Luke. You realize Leia had never met Obi Wan Kenobi. She never talked to him. She yeah. never got to tell him what she wanted to tell him to help. You know, in the fight, and you know, presumably she says, you know, you served with my father in the Clone Wars. That you know, she was going with a message from said father to him. So you know, knowing where the story goes, it would have been interesting to see what she would have said to him if she could have ever met him. But she never meets him, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, just, a, it's a cool moment. It is it like Obi Wan dying? That is a powerful in terms. Of, like for me, I mean, some people they're you know they're like they always have a defining childhood screen death, whether it's Bambi's mom or uh, or uh, Simba's dad. For me, it was it was Obi Wan because yep. it was uh, what was it? It was Billy Boyd talking about when Gandalf uh, died in uh, mm-hmm. uh, Lord of the Rings, talking about how that death. It's like Gandalf was like you know he's like an uncle or your dad. That thing of like well you know like no matter what happens if he's there. Nothing too bad can happen. So when he goes, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's like, you know, sport. And I'm not going to spoil Game of Thrones on this one, but there's <laughs> like, there's moments on Game of Thrones where like a certain character dies and it's like, oh, man, then that how <laughs> this is not good. So Obi Wan dying, that was always devastating uh, watching that. And yeah, Luke, you know, just going, I can't believe he's gone. Very great acting there on uh, part of uh, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher because yeah, you feel it when, oh, yeah. uh, when Obi Wan's gone. I agree, and I would just say this: if they were to recast this Star Wars right now, I demand that Sean Bean play Obi Wan Kenobi. I'm just going to say, <laughs> it. all right, because it would be perfect. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but no, they escape and they get back to the Rebel base, and then we get this, you know, the great briefing, right? And I, I'll just always remember thinking, man, they're using a computer to like show the battle sequence. Cool, <laughs> like how cheesy is that little thing, man? Like you could create that in an afternoon on yeah. your your iPad if you wanted to now, but at the time, oh, that looked awesome, right? And oh, yeah. it also is, again, it's a ton of exposition, but you lay out so much character stuff in there. It's like, uh, you gotta, you know, we're gonna fly down this trench because a big assault won't do anything against this this space station, but they got this trench and they got this one hole here that they didn't pay to cover up, and it goes right to the reactor. So we're gonna, we're gonna shoot something of that, and everybody's like, are you crazy? You can't hit anything two meters. And you, you know, you hear Luke go, bah, I used to shoot, you know, un known critter back home like that i'm like oh so okay luke just likes to fly around the canyon shooting people you know or shooting things you know but again i'm as a kid who grew up in the woods hunting things like that it made total sense it's like yeah i guess that's kind of what you know he would do for fun because you know i saw tattooing didn't look like a real hat in place so (laughs) but i love the whole briefing and how it all breaks down and you then remove the the guy who'd stolen the show at this point right Han Solo's like, I got my money, I'm bugging out, I'm done. Yeah. You know, it makes you hate him for a minute. For a brief second, you're like, oh, man, what a dick. He's really going to back out right when he's needed the most. However, you know, of course, without that moment, it doesn't make, you know, the payoff of that moment one of the best, you know, uh, surprise payoff moments in movie history. Oh, the, you the, you're talking about the best 16 seconds of the entire series? So we'll get yeah. there. So, yes, I agree. That's Yeah, but it does set it up. But I love how he, you know, he doesn't know Luke from anything, but what does he say to him? And they fought off some Imperial, you know, uh, fighters and stuff. And together he's like, hey, man, you're pretty good in a fight. Why don't you come with me? I could use you. You know, it's yeah. like, hey, come join me and Chewie, and we'll go, you know, pay off some uh, debts with this. And then we'll, hey, we'll, we'll have some real fun smuggling stuff. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I love that he you wants got that to that lightsaber. 
Yeah, that lightsaber, that should come in handy. Yeah, yeah, you seem to be pretty good with this force business, so, you know, <laughs> little religion never hurt anybody, so why should come on, you know? And, and uh, yeah, I don't. I love that, that bit, though, but I love the, that the plan here, and I, it, it's one of the additions to the special edition. In the, you know, the original, all the X-Wings are lined up together, perfect, you know, and then they start fooling out and all this. And then in the special edition, the redone, they're staggered, because if you know anything about... You know, any kind of uh, flying battle, it doesn't matter what you're doing, getting in the way of something's exhaust in front of you is a bad thing. So everybody staggers. And I love the setup of this because even so, there's more ships and all this stuff. It's still you're like, all of those are going to go up against that. You know, that to me it really sets the stage for this final bit. Now I gotta I gotta pick a nit here for a little bit though, because people have made fun of it for years and it's I think the guys on uh, how it should have ended really probably did the best send up of this is the whole bit of like we'll clear the planet in thirty minutes to shoot the, you know, base on the other side of the moon. And in their little version it's like, Nope, I say we clear the planet now. <laughs> and they just blow it out of the way, then blow the moon out of the way. Yeah. You know. Uh why Why not go ahead and take out another planet in the way if your whole point is to take out your rebel base? This is a remote area anyway. It's not like these people are going to vote you down in the next election. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose if they, you know, if, if all of a sudden on Yavin 4, if they saw a planet explode, everyone would hop on the ships and take <laughs> off somewhere else. Maybe so. Maybe so. So that, that, could, that could definitely be it. That's a good point. And there's also there's a moment uh, that I, I also I just didn't notice. There's a bit where you know the Death Star's getting into position, the battle is on the way, and Vader is standing next to Tark, and he says, "This will be a day long remembered. It has seen the end of Kenobi, and will soon see the end of the Rebellion." And Tarkin looks, gives this quick like shift of his eyes back to Vader, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it looks like Peter Cushion is going, "The hell was that?" It's like, what, like why, why did you just say that just now? I just thought that was, I don't know why, it just made me laugh when I was watching this. Yeah, it is, <laughs> it is, it is kind of a strange look like, do you, you, you're being a little cocky there, yeah. my friend. That, that wasn't necessary. <laughs> yeah, like that was, we, we're, I mean, that's the thing about Grandma of Tarkin, is he's set up to be this supremely bad evil guy, and certainly is a bad guy, no doubt. But you almost get the sense that he's any military leader that is doing his job. You know, yeah. he is, he is following orders, he is doing his job. And his job at that moment was to, you know, go and seek out the rebel base and destroy it. So that's what he, he was just doing his job in a lot of ways. That You didn't get the sense that he had a lot of personal vendetta tied up in this, you know, necessarily. I, didn't, I never read that, at least. I always thought of him as, he's a bad guy, sure, but he's just someone doing what he is supposed to do. He's just a military guy. Oh, yeah, he's just, you know, man with a job. There's plenty of Star Wars villains that come later in the Empire that are evil, evil. This guy, he's just, you know, he's one of the Nazis that, you know, who cares about why the Nazis are doing it? It's like, well, my job is to kill the other guy, so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And uh, that is what, what Tarkin is. Exactly. Yeah, in a lot of ways, like, I, I liken him to, like, Rommel, you know, yeah, and, yeah. in that era. I mean, you know, the, the Patton had so much respect for it, and everybody, you know, everybody was like, how can you like this guy at all? But, you know, it, it, it was a, he was an equal in a lot of ways. Yeah. So he was well respected on the on the scene. So yeah, I get I get that and I, I enjoy that. I think that's a an interesting interplay there between them. But we you know, we've got the ticking clock. You gotta always have that in the script, right? So yeah. you know that time is running out. They don't have a lot of time to go and, you know, stage this attack. You know, so the first wave of the attack in the trenches, man, I mean, everything that could go wrong goes wrong. They get shot yeah. out of the space, essentially. I mean, there's there's n- they, they can't get around. the. If it's not the tower guns taking them out, it's the TIE fighters coming from behind and frying them up. Right. I mean, yeah. these, the rebels get it handed to them pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, like I was saying at the beginning, uh, 
in terms of special effects sequences, mm-hmm. this is the this is the big one. This oh, is the yeah. movie history. This is the big one of night of you know of twentieth century up to that point. It was like the biggest special effects set piece ever. And so it's the speed is what really uh, uh, catches me uh, when I when I watch now. It's like God, they they did were able to make this stuff and they were able to make it go so fast, like yes. like actual proper you know as fast as jets would go and so on. Like they're not moving slowly at all. Like they're going like, you know, 120 miles an hour or whatever down these trenches so fast. That first person POV shot of the, of the ship going down, zooming into the trench. There's no fixing that in the special edition because they got it right the first time. Exactly. Uh, It's amazing to look at, right? It's just, it's awesome to watch, excuse me. And awesome to watch all of it. Even though it's not working, it's so fast and it's quick and it's, it's, you know, today, action films often fall into this need to just quick cut everything to death, right? You can't follow. It gives you a headache trying to follow the action. Yeah. This moves just as fast as any of that, and it never needs to do that. One, they couldn't do it back then. But even if they could have, it didn't need it because this, this film is and this sequence is well paced and well put together. And there's all this cutting back and forth between the – you know, Grand Moff Tarkin and his crew watching the battle go down, and then Leia and her crew on the moon watching this go down, and the people in the in the X wings and and the Y wings just you know fighting it out with the uh, the Tie Fighters. We can talk about the X wings and the Tie Fighters for a minute. Hmm. Talk about cool analogs for you know your Japanese heroes and your P fifty ones. Man, this is yeah. straight World War Two battle sequence stuff right here. Oh yeah, I mean it's totally against, and it, yeah, it's totally against. There's no sound in space, but the sound of the mm-hmm. Tie Fighters that is such a fantastic sound that is based on the Japanese zeros. But mm-hmm. I, I just, I just love those. That uh, it's just such a weird thing to hear like a, a ship like scream like that. It just like mm-hmm. like it, it would scare the shit out of you if you were on the <laughs> yes. planet and all of a sudden here come the Tie Fighters. Like uh, great, you know, uh, you know, it's obviously that, that that's villains. That's that that's kind of a villains wearing the black hats thing. But uh, I love those Tie Fighters. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're they're great, and the all the sequence is great. You realize that the rebels have pretty cool stuff, but they're incredibly outmanned and outgunned in yes. this. If they got to do dogfights with the X wings all day, they're going to lose, and they're going to lose huge. Uh, you know, I'd always have told people for years the best aerial battle sequences I've ever seen filmed are in Top Gun. Tony Scott and his crew, amazing looking stuff. The second best are in the first, you know, the what I call the first Star Wars movie in episode four. Yeah. This is an amazing aerial sequence, you know, and, and you really get into it. And, and I love how you got the one leader who's he's got two guys running block for him, basically. And then we see Darth Vader show up. Now, not only is he so bad that he can cut somebody in half and they disappear, you know, you've already got that laying on you, but... He can also fly a TIE fighter, and his TIE fighter is like the deluxe like Ferrari TIE fighter. It's got the yeah. curved wings, and he is a great <laughs> he's a great pilot and a great shot. You know, and he just I mean, they're just he's laying waste to all of these rebels while they're the the leader's making his uh, his first attack run, and you just realize you're like, is he gonna make it in time? Is he gonna make it in time? And I love the fact that that the leader gets a shot off. He gets his torpedoes fired off. But it misses. His targeting yeah. computer is just a little off, and he's just boom right below, and so it's not enough. And he gets shot out of the sky, and before he gets blown out of space, he tells Luke, "Get around for your attack run," as if to say, "I'm not going to be here, so you need to go ahead and take care of this." Oh yeah, and I, I love it. It's a great military moment. We know nothing about that guy, nothing at all. 
Uh, we've seen him in one other scene before this, and he's just kind of standing there. But you totally understand the sacrifice that he's willing to make to put this in the hands of somebody he just met, you know, uh, uh, maybe four, four hours ago. You know, I, yeah. th- that's pretty amazing if you think about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, that whole Death Star battle sequence, it's weird how they make. The characters in that thing where you don't even know their names, yeah, uh, but just like Red Five, Red Four, they're they're like you just there's something iconic about that shot of looking, you know, at uh, uh, them in in, in their uh, in the cockpit, like that. Mm-hmm. That's like a that's a Star Wars thing to me. It's like you see a shot like that, that's from Star Wars. Right? When you see all these characters of Biggs oh. and Wedge. Uh, yeah. and uh, and Porkins. Porkins. Uh, Who can forget Porkins? Never forget yeah. Porkins. <laughs> so it's, it's proved that if you're if you're that big, you'll slow down the, the spacecraft. So yeah. um, in spite of zero gravity conditions. So, but no, I I love that though. I I love that that whole scene too because it, again, it sets up that they are up against incredible odds. If we didn't already realize that, and now they're getting picked off one by one, and so Luke is going on his attack run. Right. And he's, you know, he's getting shot up the whole way and it's, it's getting dire situations and his guys are getting picked off behind him by Vader and his crew. You know, he, he, you know, Wedge has to bail out cause he's shot up and it's just Luke in the end. And he's got Darth Vader, you know, trying to zero his sights in on him and then love Vader dropping that line. Like the force is strong with this one. Yeah. And, you get the sense that like that's something he has not encountered from these rebels before is somebody that can use the force, you know, that that's at least uh, somewhere in the same neighborhood as he is. And that's new to him. And I don't know that that's just a neat moment that he can't quite hit him. You know, he, get, he gets close and close, but he can't quite shoot him down. Right. And it was always a nice uh, moment to Vader that, that, yeah, Vader sounding perplexed for a split second. Oh, force is strong with this one. Yeah. Uh, and he just keeps, you know, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. He just keeps on and on with the guy um, until, you know, he's, he's almost got him. And uh, But uh, while that's going on, Luke has his targeting computer on, and then the voice of Obi-Wan comes out. Use the Force, Luke. Use the Force. And the whole idea of you don't need the technology. Just go with your gut, and you'll find your way through this thing. That what an amazing concept there, you know, for all the advantages that he's got. He's finally got his hands on the stuff he wanted to do when he's back on the farm, right? Wanted to go to the academy, learn all this stuff, right? Finally got his hands on it, and now he's being told, no, just go with what you already know. Go with your gut. Yeah. Really, really cool scene and pays off what Kenobi said. I'll be more powerful than you can ever imagine. You know, I'll be beyond death at that point. He becomes your spirit, which is uh, pretty amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. Use the Force, Luke. I mean, that is uh, what's that, that, that? That's up there. One of the well, that's, top. The, that's the quote. I mean, yeah. May the Force be with you. You know, all that stuff. I mean, that that gets said forever. The the idea there is it's uh it's just well placed. But I love how everybody back home is like, hey man, what what's wrong? You shut off your computer, you yeah. know? And and he's like, nope, I got it, I got it, and he's good. <laughs> and just when he, I mean, you know, it's it's that perfect again the music is built you're right at the moment you realize he's right on top of the exhaust port and he you know vader's like i've got you now you know i have you now that great you know booming line and then boom his the guy next to him gets shot out of the space and what you realize is han solo has flown back in to save the day uh what a great moment Oh yeah, and the, when the, you know the screaming into the mic, Yahoo, like that, you know, like pure cowboy western sounds. Like that's another great Han Solo moment. Is he's the kind of guy who would do that in the, in the you know, uh, 
well, Darth Vader's listening on the mic. I love that moment. <laughs> exactly. Well, I love I love that they're all in the same intercoms. Basically, they hear that, and I love that. What does he say? I mean, I said it's the best sixteen seconds of Star Wars. It's that lead up to that when he blasts him out of the way. The other guy bumps into Vader and spins him out of the way, and he lays that line on him: "Blow this thing, kid, and let's go home." Yeah. And and he fires the shot, and then boom, that's it. And you know the Death Star explodes, and what a grand explosion! And I love that the last thing before the explosion is Tarkin looking out of his viewfinder there, waiting for it to fire because they're about to fire yeah. the laser. I mean, it's at the last possible second, and the you know he never knew what hit him. Basically, yeah. that's that's the amazing thing. It's like man, that's a fast chain reaction because like when a nuclear plant melts down, you know, and well, you know, look. Uh, Nick and I just talked about this in the Godzilla movie. When that goes down, that takes several minutes for that to happen. No, apparently not anymore. <laughs> you know? yeah. So that I, I don't know. I always thought that was really cool that it, it took no time at all for the explosion to happen. But that's how we want it, right? I mean, that's yeah. the, the big payoff moment. Oh yeah, but again, that's a very that's a pretty big design flaw on that, the that is, Yeah, part. that's that's a huge huge issue. Well, you know, when you get that big and you get that cocky, Kurt, you know, <laughs> I guess oh, yeah. I guess you make those kind of mistakes. But what a what a fabulous and again the score there just you know a resounding ending. I I've often thought, and whether he was on purpose or not, there's a tinge of the end of the Jaws score after Brody goes smile you son of a bitch and shoots yeah. the Shark Tank and blows it up to where the music that plays as the Death Star dissipates into the sparkles into the sky. There's a little bit of that somewhere in there. I don't. You'll never get anybody to you know Williams will never admit that, but it, I just hear it in there. I'm like I can't not hear it. I just feel that same moment. In fact, if somebody on YouTube really wants to entertain me, please. Intercut Chief Brody saying, Smile, you son of a bitch, as Luke shoots the Death Star. <laughs> I will pay you $5 if you do that. <laughs> Hit me up on Fiverr. We will, we will go for that. So, but anyway. And then the, the ultimate ending is the final ceremony. There's really no dialogue. There's nothing else that happens. They walk into a room, yeah. they get some medals, everybody claps, the music swells, and then that's the end. You know, and you're left to wonder, well, now what? Now what? Right? Oh, yeah. And just a, just a fabulous uh, moment. There's still, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like the, well, let's, you know, at the happiest of endings, evil has been vanquished today. Here, our, our guys are getting some, some medals, but there's still, from an audience point of view, there are still a ton of questions. Vader's like, Vader, Vader survived right there. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, that's not good. You know, well, there's still stuff left to do with the force. They name drop the emperor. Yeah. But quickly, oh, the emperor has uh, dissolved the, the Senate, uh, so we don't have to worry about the Senate anymore. It's like, well, emperor, what the hell is an emperor? Yeah. And, and so on. So, so like, they they end it with an ending that the movie is – the structure is perfect. If they never did make another Star Wars movie and they just left that as a standalone, you know, hey, like here's a sample of what your average movie serial was like, it's a, it is a, a perfect ending. Okay. It, you know, yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on the Death Star blowing up? Because I, I didn't really let you weigh in on that. Oh, well, no, Death Star blowing up. That is – I mean uh, it's a toss-up now between that and the shark blowing up in Jaws in terms of what is the best – explosion and the house in Django Unchained is up there too in my opinion yeah I, yeah that explosion and that's one thing that the special edition did that is an improvement is they made the explosion bigger they added yes. like a, a wave of, of a plasma energy or whatever like circulating through the air more sparks and you know and that was great oh yeah and watching in the theater that that star exploded I've only heard an audience applaud in like Canada we don't react at all yeah during movies but when that when the death star explodes audience breaks out into applause and uh Oh, I, I, yeah, it, you it, can't it, help it. It literally brought like little twinges of tears to 
me and my my friend Jennifer's eyes as we watched this, and there was a group of kids that like applauded that moment in front of us because yeah. of course we knew it was coming, but we were like, wow, that's so cool for that to be the first time you saw it. And I remember the first time seeing that. It's it is like the shark blowing up in jaws for me. It's just one of those things in film I'll I'll never forget. There's three endings of of films that have always stuck with me. It's the ending blow-up of the Death Star in Star Wars here. It's the death of Jaws, and it's when Michael Myers gets blown off the roof in uh, hmm. the first Halloween. There's just something about those things that, that they're, they're stamped in my brain as film moments I'll never forget. So, Well, I think we're at the point of the podcast here, Kurt, where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. Usually when we say there's no uh, you know surprise to this, it's because we both have you know talked about the worst thing we've ever seen. So this time <laughs> it'll be a little refreshing to hear what are yours for Star Wars episode four a new hope well star wars is something that i have periods on and off uh for the last decade it's always been like oh, i'm too old for star wars well let me take a trip back oh you know here here's christopher nolan here's what he does with epics oh yeah star wars is childish comparison and then watching it again last night it was just like nope this movie is perfect it's a perfect film there's a reason on every afi Top 100 film list, Star Wars Episode 4 is always in the top 10. The structure of this film is a blueprint the same way that Casablanca is, where just like, if you really wanted to, if you ripped off Star Wars, you're going to have, chances are you might have something decent in the end. Star Wars, the characters, the cast of characters are just so iconic, every single one of them. At this point now, you know, no-name characters have been given names like Porkins or or Greedo, all these characters that are have become iconic. Take one look at them, you know, you know what they're, you, you know who they are. And the, the beyond iconic score of John Williams, Oscar-winning score, score, film won five Oscars for costume design, art direction, sound design, visual effects, and the score uh, deserve every single one of them. And yep, Star Wars, you know, it belongs on the same list as The Godfather, Jaws, Chinatown. Citizen Kane, Lawrence of Arabia, To Kill a Mockingbird, and all of the defining films of our time. No, and few films have influenced pop culture and cinema the way Star Wars has. And it is, uh, it is a perfect film. And I give it nothing less than an extra large popcorn. Throw, you know, give me a get it, put it, stuff it in a bucket, throw some butter on there. That's uh, the highest possible rating a movie can get. Is like you know, Star Wars. I couldn't say it better than what you said there. This is a perfect film, and I'll just say it right now. This is my favorite Star Wars film. Always has been. And in spite of the praise that I'll give some of what's coming, and not only just the next two, but some of what's in the prequel stuff too, this has always been my go-to for Star Wars films. I think probably because it's the one I've seen the most. And it mm. goes back to having had a copy of it, you know, at an early age and having access to the VCR and just being able to watch it during the summers. This was just something that was always on my rotation. And I, like you, have always thought, eh, you know, or often thought, I'm a little too old for this. And then I watch it again, and I, I see new things in it that I didn't see before. That's the testament to great films, beyond just really good films or good films, is that every time you watch them, you can find some new wrinkle in it. You see a new character motivation. You see another wink or another look that somebody gave. It's just there. And and for me, that happens in, in three films. This film, it happens in Jaws, and it happens in the 1978 John Carpenter Halloween. Uh, you know, those are the three big ones for me, and you know they they kind of line up in that order: Jaws, Star Wars, and Halloween for me. And so this is an extra large popcorn all the way. And I, you know I've seen Annie Hall. 
And I think it's a pretty good movie. How this, again, the Academy sometimes and its biases, if this, you know, I'm so glad that finally the the return of the king won you know best picture but i so wish uh, if any if any of them deserved it this film certainly did in the 50th academy awards that's just it's one of those great oscar slights that i'll just you know i'll always bring up when people want to have that conversation i'm like yeah star wars should have won because uh, there was no film like this of its time and and it changed the way films were made forever well i happen to love uh, annie hall a lot uh <laughs> I'm a big fan of that, and that, that, that always was the thing with me. Is like I never had never seen Annie Hall. It's like you know, how do they give Annie Hall best picture over Star Wars? I eventually saw Annie Hall. It's like yeah, I you can wa- see why. Yeah, you watch gave. it and you see. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, it's hard. I mean, to, it's hard to deny it, but but people yeah. make you know. This, I've heard this a ton of times. It's like you know, does anyone even remember that that Dance with the Wolves beat Goodfellas mm-hmm. for best picture? What film has stood the test of time more? You know, Ordinary People or Raging Bull? Which film do they remember more? And like. You know, obviously, Annie Hall is a Woody Allen film that'll last forever. But yeah, Star Wars. I mean, whether it won an Oscar or not, it. I mean, it won in terms of being a film that will hopefully still be around uh, <laughs> in another hundred years. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's that's funny that you mentioned that hopefully bit because now that Disney, of course, owns Lucasfilm, it, yeah. you know, they've already put out the Blu-rays of these, and it's the special editions. But they're talking about putting out Blu-rays of the original theatrical of the original trilogy uh, again sometime. You know, probably when that new one comes out in 2015. So, which yeah. we didn't say it at the top. That's also the other reason to do this. You know, you can set up for a series that's coming out next month. But why do that when you can, you know, set up for one that's coming out in a year and a half? So yeah. uh, we, you know, we'll we'll promise at some point that we will get to that one when it comes out. So, but we got five other ones to go here, Kirk, and I'm looking forward to delving into the rest of these films uh, with you because, like I said, I haven't visited them as much as I have. Um, this installment here. This is the one that I've watched the most, so it'll be fun to go back and watch uh, what's coming up next uh, for us here on Filmstrip. Folks, thank you again for joining us on this episode of our podcast. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. You can also find a link there to our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Hook up with us on social media, and if you get a chance, leave us a review on iTunes. And on the Continuous Play homepage, you can find a link to the Art of Slaying, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer seven-season retrospective that's out there, and also a link to the Fabish Factor. Uh, Kurt can tell you a little bit about that. Yes, we can. Uh, We have uh, episodes on the Alien franchise. We have episodes on... Top films of various years. Uh, on uh, on the uh, upcoming, uh, there's a Batman podcast I have in mind that I'm going to be doing with Cody Lang. Uh, that we'll be cover. Hopefully, well, the idea is we'll be covering uh, our favorite comics, our favorite episodes of the animated series, and then on, so on with the films and video games and everything. Everything Batman. You know, I can't say when, but that's coming. Also, uh, best films of 1986. I'll be doing with uh, Franco who uh, is on the Favorite Factor Film Podcast. And Game of Thrones Season 3 is on the way. Yes. Absolutely. Just waiting for scheduling to come together. But that show is coming, and uh, that's going to be a long one, I can tell you that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lots to say about that. Fun shows all around, folks. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to join us and let us know what you think along the way. Until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to our Star Wars Retrospective Series. May the Force be with you.